we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Welcome back, everyone, to The Truth Perspective. In the studio today, we have Shane LaChance. Hey, everybody. Corey Schink. Hello. And I am Harrison Cayley. Today, we are pleased to have joining us Hugo Turner, who is a writer, and his blog is called Anti-Imperialist U. Now, the blog's been around for just over a couple of years now, and he focuses on and writes about just a wide range of topics in the geopolitical anti-imperialist theme. And today we are going to be talking about Iran-Contra and branching out from there because this year, 2016, is the 30th year anniversary of the breaking of the Iran-Contra scandal. So we're going to get into that and kind of maybe take a trip deeper down the rabbit hole and see all the different, well, some of the different connections going back leading up to Iran-Contra and extending from then to the present. So first of all, Hugo, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks. Great to be on. Cool. Well, to start out with, I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners probably haven't checked out your blog yet. Some of them have because we've posted some of your articles on SOT. But I wanted to know uh, if you could just give us a little bit about your background and how you came to start writing your blog, what inspired you to kind of take up the pen and open the anti-imperialist you? Well, it started with September 11th. There was just this endless series of wars, and finally, it just sort of, I decided I had to do like my part to try to educate people about why is this happening, like what is this all about. And so, you know, I decided to start really researching history hardcore and writing about what I found, and also just sort of talking about what's going on right now, you know, with like, I've, I've written a lot about Ukraine, I've written a lot about Syria, and a lot of Latin America. Also, when I was a kid, I, my parents were involved in the solidarity with the Central American people, and we would, we heard this priest talk about being tortured by the CIA when I was a kid, and that made, like, a big impression on me. But re- I guess, really, it was just kind of like the Aztecs, stuff like that, slavery. And I was, I was always interested in history as a kid. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned you know nine eleven as a starting point. That was that was largely a starting point for me. Prior to that, I don't think I knew much of anything about you know what was really going on in the world. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I knew what you know the word Zionist meant. That kind of blew open the doors for me. It created the shock, and you know some people I think took it in a direction where they were just accepting the official narrative of things, but. I think for others, you know, it kind of created the spark to ask why these things were going on. In your articles, which we have up on SOT, people should definitely check them out because there's so many avenues of research. A person could spend months and months and years delving into all the different threads that you talk about on SOT. The title of the article is Beyond the Iran-Contra Affair, Part 1, The Secret Team, and Part 2, World War Three Has Already Happened. So with all these threads, I think when, you know, when we're looking into these things, somebody might start looking into ISIS 
and find, you know, all these connections to Saudi Arabia and, and, and Turkey and, and, you know, delve into these secret networks that have influence. And with Iran-Contra, it seems such a great representative of the way the U.S. operates covertly and holding so much influence and power and these questions of how these uh, players got to this influence, you know, where the funding came from, uh, what the connections are. It made me wonder, too, you know, what what was your starting point for the Iran-Contra affair? Was it starting from 9-11 and going back? Or you know, how, how did your interest in that come about? Well, I, I was like a kid when the Iran-Contra affair happened, so the first exposure that there was this whole secret world going on underneath the surface of nice Reagan. He seems like a kindly old man, but really <laughs> what's actually going on is like the opposite of what people would think. They claim that they're fighting this huge war on drugs, but actually they're like bringing the drugs in on planes to fund these death squads in Central America, or they claim that they're fighting terrorists, but actually they're funding terrorists all over the place, like in Afghanistan or in Lebanon. And so Iran-Contra, in many ways, you could see it going into the future. Like 9-11 definitely merged out of that whole Iran-Contra era because you had the Afghanistan, you had Saudi Arabia, you had Israel, like all these same players, Adnan Khashoggi, people like that. And then like Iran-Contra, you can also go backwards in time from it. You can go to the start of the Cold War, Vietnam, the death of JFK. All these things are like all interconnected. And just because the people that are caught in Iran-Contra had to have these long careers, just by following their careers, you could see this whole history of American foreign policy that's like the real history, you know, I'm saying like the, from the CIA's perspective. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can start out just with a bit of what Iran-Contra really was. Can you give us a little background of even just the official story, like what was Iran-Contra and how did it become like such a big scandal? Basically, in order to, supposedly in order to free hostages, the U.S. agreed to secretly sell weapons to Iran, and then they used that money to fund the Contras, who they've been forbidden by Congress from helping any any further because they got caught mining the harbors and things like that. The Contras were a, an army that the CIA set up to make war on Nicaragua, which was a country that had a revolution in 1979 that threw out this dictator that had been installed, like he was the son of an, a dictator that had been installed in the 30s. He owned the whole country. To make money, he would people would come and sell their blood, and he would ship, sell ship the blood to America. Like that's how much of a, like a dictator he was. And anyway, he was overthrowing this huge revolution. But then, of course, it's there's communism. I mean, <laughs> some of them, some of the families were communists. Some of them were just like wanted to overthrow the dictator. But America decided, you know, we have to stamp out these, this new government in Nicaragua because it could spread to El Salvador, where they're also having a civil war, where like rebels were trying to overthrow the system there, or in Guatemala. So they set these death squads in to terrorize the people and try to, like, ruin their effort to make a better Nicaragua. Because, like, the Nicaraguans are trying to build schools, hospitals. Most of the people were poor, so they're trying to improve the lives of the majority of the citizens. And America hates that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. just like with Cuba earlier, they had sent all these people to invade and do terrorist acts. That's what they did in Nicaragua. And they, they use the same people that actually had done it in Cuba were the same ones that were doing it in Nicaragua. So like Syria today, where they fund these uh, death squads to go in and just try to destroy as much as possible, blow up hospital schools, try to destroy the society. Yeah, it, it seems that there's this template that the U.S. has where they find the the craziest, uh, most psychopathic, what would you call them? Not rebels. <laughs> 
death squads is like a good yeah these death squads and so there's this comparison when you look at the contras uh that you made in your part one of the article was that they were like the isis of their early 1980s they were extremely extremely violent to the people in in nicaragua they were just uh slashing and, and and murdering people and the comparison to isis is just like really apparent when you look at how yeah, this template was is used over and over and over again. Yeah, it's like a standard tactic of psychological operations that you, you don't just, like, kill someone. You do it in that super gruesome manner because you really want to shock people and make them, like, terrified and paralyzed. I mean, can you imagine if someone down the street was just mutilated and chopped up and everyone, you were, like, forced to watch this? Obviously, you'd be scared of whoever <laughs> had done that. You know, it's forced you to watch. You wouldn't want to mess with them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's what was going on for years in Nicaragua, not just there, like in dozens of countries. And you mentioned you get into a lot of them in just these articles and in other articles that you've written on your blog. So while this is going on in the early 80s, it's going on for a while. And then it isn't until October 5th, 1986, so this is almost 30 years ago, that a plane carrying weapons to the Contras from El Salvador was shot down over Nicaragua. I'm reading this from the first part of your series of articles here. Three of the plane's passengers were killed, William Cooper, Wallace Sawyer, and an unidentified Latin American. But Eugene Hassenfuss, he survived, as you write, disastrously for the Reagan administration. He began to talk. So he basically told the story about what was going on and how this, how this whole money to the Contras was going on. That's kind of like the official story. You've got the arms sales to Iran, which the Americans and even the a lot of the government, like Congress at the time, wasn't too happy about because Iran was this evil place now, now that the Shah had been ousted. And so what was, what were the, what was the United States doing deals with Iran for? And then same thing with the Contras. Congress had passed some kind of bill basically forbidding any kind of overt um, support to the Contras for regime change. And then this story comes out, and, and it, it's basically revealed that the Reagan administration had been doing all of this stuff, even though they weren't supposed to. I mean, big surprise. But it goes even deeper than that. And one of the angles tied directly into Iran-Contra, or maybe two of them, first there was the, the drug smuggling angle. And then second, there was the involvement of Israel, which doesn't get mentioned a lot um, when you just read mainstream accounts of it. So I was wondering, Hugo, if you could just tell us a little bit about the drug angle and maybe the Israel angle. Well, like, once you have secret planes flying in and out of places, it's a very quick way to make money is to, like, have the drugs on the plane's back. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you're like, you have CIA protection, you could get all these drugs flowing into the country, so obviously you're making, like, billions of dollars. They have the whole crack epidemic and everything that Gary Webb talked about. But really, this is just a pattern of CIA control of drug smuggling going back to the end of World War II when, like, first they arrived with the nationalist Chinese, and then for, like, 40 years, this heroin would come out of Asia, and then once the Vietnam War ended, it started coming out of Afghanistan, and then cocaine started coming out from South America, from, like, first the Condor countries, and then it would stop over in Central America, so the Contra Resupply operation just became part of, like, that global drug connection. Mm-hmm. Well, that Chinese nationalist... The KMP. The people that rule Taiwan today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really fascinating piece in your article, and mainly because I had been wondering, where is the funding coming from to support 
the major power players working behind the scenes in the U.S. And uh, last week we had an interview with Robbie Martin. He did this three-part documentary, and one part was covering the you know the these modern neocons who have kind of transformed and who have just you know this tremendous influence in Washington. And with that kind of influence, you know, behind it is always a ton of money. So, you know, you wonder where this money came from. And we always hear about, you know, it's the drug trade. And what you're talking about with these Chinese nationalists is that it goes back uh, in time. And then the money used from that was to fund these right wing uh, lobbyists who then, you know, would would, uh, create their guy. Yeah, the heroin money funded, like, Joe McCarthy, the rise of Richard Nixon, Reagan, Bush. So, like, civil rights, the FBI whistleblower, one of the things she discovered was that the same thing is happening with drug money going to fund the neocons today, connected to al-Qaeda. So, yeah, there's all this foreign money from the drug trade that flows in by congressmen, also, obviously, the blackmail, prostitution. Yeah, and if you think about today, there, well, in the past, a lot of this drug money was from the drug trade coming from Asia, Southeast Asia. Today, a lot of it's coming from Afghanistan. But if you look at Southeast Asia today, it looks like there's a lot of blackmail coming out of there. Only these days, it has to do with the the kind. Well, what do you call them? The the pedophile trips that they take to these nations, and where they send well congressmen and well any any kind of people in positions of power. They make these trips to these Southeast Asian nations where they basically uh, sleep with child prostitutes or do worse. And oftentimes they are videotaped or you know, otherwise recorded doing this, and then that's used as blackmail over them. So we've got the, the sexual blackmail being used as well as a way of controlling just these perverts in power. I don't really research that, but like, if anyone's interested in that, check out Sibylle Edmonds wrote this thinly veiled, supposedly a novel, but actually it's like the truth, but she had to write a novel called The Living Gladio, and she's talking about exactly what you're saying with the Southeast Asian blackmail and these people that go on these junkets down there, and apparently a recent congressman that was recently disgraced was one of these people that was being blackmailed for being involved in this pedophile ring in Thailand. Yeah, that was actually, that was Dennis Hastert, the former oh, yeah. Speaker of the House. <laughs> and uh, and so th- that's a really interesting story. I mean, we've talked about it. I think we've mentioned it a couple times on the show before, but if anyone's familiar with the like the recent scandal, I believe he's now in prison. I don't know for how long. But what they got him for was basically sleeping with some of his students when he was a high school teacher, like, what, t- 30 years ago. But there's no mention in any of the, the mainstream reporting about him that this has been an ongoing pattern and that this is one of the guys that Sibel Edmonds was... Absolutely. And he's like, well, also getting that drug money, too. Yeah. So they had it both ways. I'm pretty sure the character in Lone Gladio the, that you're talking about, it's a great book, by the way. I've recommended it before. It's not only very informative, it's just a really good like thriller. It's fun to read. But I'm pretty sure the character that you're talking about was based on Dennis Hastert. So that's the kind of thing that has been going on. <laughs> I'll just try to be discreet, but I'm glad you're familiar <laughs> with all that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't really do the blackmail. That kind of stuff kind of creeps me out, all the sex yeah. crimes and stuff. So I'm more like covert war operations and like the drug trade, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. More of my- Yeah, just reading through your article, you really get a good picture of this huge rabbit hole that's opened up that you can kind of get a peek into through the Iran-Contra scandal. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the individuals that were connected to it. 
uh, especially the names that are familiar to us, like Oliver North and uh, the first uh, George Bush, and just kind of give an idea of what they were doing, what they were connected to, and kind of branch out from there. Oliver North was in some sense sort of like a front man. Like he wasn't as important. Like he'd worked with all these people in Vietnam. But like um, this really cool guy is called Theodore Shackley. He just traced his career. He was in charge of the Miami Station Chief doing the Bay of Pigs. So, I mean, he might have been connected to the JFK assassination. Then he goes to, like, Laos, where, like, they just have the heroin army up to so, so there. Then he sent the Nugent Hand and Bush. He was, like, a lifelong CIA agent, but, like, most people think that he wasn't. So, like, as Russ Baker has revealed, actually, yeah, he always was. I just knew on instinct just because of the way he was acting in the 80s. <laughs> because it's, it's, like, it's yeah. not, like, some standard politician. You know, this guy's going meeting with gangsters, terrorists all over the world. He puts himself in charge of this anti-drug operation in Florida, which is just looks like a joke because the drugs are just flowing in, and he's not really doing anything to stop it. He's friends with all of like the top drug dealers. I mean, like he's friends with Manuel Noriega. He's friends with the Colombian cartels. He's friends with the Contras. <laughs> so it was obvious that he was like, not just some guy that was CIA director for one year, but actually had always been in the CIA, and he was like a veteran. And he also, of course. Uh Something that Russ Baker also talks about in his book is his intimate connections with the Saudis. I believe he was pretty instrumental in setting up the Safari Club. Is that correct? Maybe, could you tell us a little bit about the Safari Club? When the CIA got in all this trouble during the 70s for, like, their different operations, they decided that their new tactic would be to, like, join an alliance with all these other intelligence agencies and so that they could deny what they're doing. You know, they just asked the French to do this or the Saudis to do that. And they had the Safari Club. That is what Al-Qaeda grew out of. I mean, originally it started just to fund the war in Angola, but then they started funding the Iran-Contra stuff, the war in Afghanistan, and the birth of Al-Qaeda. Hmm. Yeah, and so all that's pretty much everything that, we're, that we see going on in the world today with, you know, for the, in the past 15 years with Al-Qaeda and with ISIS and, you know, numerous groups all over the Middle East and North Africa with these Al-Qaeda offshoots, I mean, it pretty much all traces back 30-plus years to the Safari Club, to what the, the clique of people that were involved in Iran-Contra. I think what really comes across in your articles is just how kind of wide-ranging this stuff was. And it's not necessarily that Iran-Contra itself was, was wide-ranging, but it was just this one small piece of this vast puzzle and with all the pieces kind of interlinking. So I don't have all the names at the, at the tip of my tongue, but um, every once in a while you'll mention an individual and then just mention all of the different covert wars and dirty wars that they were involved in either before and after. And, I mean, some of these guys were either involved in all of these things before and during Iran-Contra or during Iran-Contra and afterwards. And it's just like this totally continuous stream of this group of people so I think that the secret team is a good angle that you, that you took to write your first article on this. Fletcher Prouty uses that term and used it for the title of one of his books. And it's, it's not like they all have uh, a name that they call themselves. So I think that secret team is as good as any moniker to call them by because it's just this, this relatively small group of people and it just, it's just been wreaking havoc for years, for decades. Yeah. It sounds like a, just a separate organism. The CIA has compartmentalized the really dirty stuff. They wanted only a certain amount of people to know. So a lot of tens of thousands of people working there, but up until they got busted for all this, I ran contest. A lot of people that worked for the CIA didn't know they were involved in drugs or something. But these people knew, or they wouldn't know that the CIA is involved in terrorism. So like only a select 
group knows everything, all the dirty stuff, and that would be like these secret team people that have just been going from like country to country, watching coups, covert wars, building up assassination programs, training right-wing dictators, death squads, and stuff like that. It had been 30 years at that point. Now, since then, it's been like another 30 years. It's, yeah. like, it's more massive than it's ever been before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You, you think how evolved that secret team uh, has become just over the past decade. And, you know, it's it's got to be much more elaborate and complicated and, and ways that we have no idea about. Yeah, they've um, had, like, generations to pretty much mm-hmm. perfect their craft. So, I mean, they, they know what they're doing because they've been doing it for literally generations. Not only that, but they, they kill each other. So I mean, it's the survival of the fittest to the nth degree in those groups. It's pretty, the survival of the most craziest. Oh, yeah, that's definitely, there's all these people that die, like Americans. Like, obviously, hundreds of thousands of people died just in Central America alone. So, like, Americans killed during Iran Contra. That's what that's the most people don't talk about. There was, like, Barry Seal. When he was 16, he was at the same Air National Guard battalion as Oswald and, like, David Ferry. If people have seen JFK, David Ferry was the Joe Pesci guy. Mm-hmm. And, like, Barry Seal and Oswald were both under this David Ferry. And then, like, for 30 years, Barry Seal was flying into Cuba, flying weapons. And then he became, like, the biggest drug seller in the world. And he was, like, a personal friend with George Bush. But then he got busted and he was like, you know what the hell, man, I was, I was doing this for you, for the government, like, get me off of this, and they're like, we'll see what we can do, and he's like, I'm going to tell him, like, you're involved, and then, like, this Colombian desk squad machine goes him down, or another Bush friend was Todd Arnau, and he was, like, the inventor of a cigarette boat, which was used in, like, drug smuggling, and he died at the same time, around the same time as Barry Seal. One of the top people was uh, William Casey, the CIA director, he was supposed to testify for Iran-Contra, he collapsed on the ground, so he never could go, and then, like, before he could testify, he died of a brain t- <laughs> brain tumor three months later, which is like people might think it's paranoid to think that the CIA can give people cancer or a heart attack, but they can do that. They've been mm-hmm. they've had that capability since the fifties. I mean, just common sense would tell you that there's all sorts of things that can give you cancer that are just in the public record, you know, like asbestos, things like that. So it's no problem for them. Yeah, I think that Barry <laughs> Seal really got a got the the bad end of that bargain because it remi- it reminds me of of a story that I think it was just from a well sometime in the last couple of years and it was this British guy who had gone to Syria to fight for the so-called rebels he came back to the UK and they actually put him on trial and he was going to court and his defense was well you can't charge me because I was there working for like <laughs> like for British intelligence like they were the guys that were that were supporting the group that I was fighting for. And so they actually let him go. They said, oh, well, you're right, so we can't charge you. <laughs> they, they didn't even have to kill him. The British just said, oh, yeah, you're right. We were funding you and, and supporting yeah, you. Yeah, they, so. they, they want him talking on the court records or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As Barry Seal says, not necessarily a smart thing to do to threaten <laughs> to tell everything you know. Yeah, for sure. He could just have mysteriously committed suicide in his cell instead of being released. Mm-hmm. And this is the guy that had George H.W.'s Bush's phone number in his yeah. pocket yep. and they, they found that he died? Yeah, well, it was just... Bush himself that he was threatening. Daniel Hopsicker is this independent journalist. He was, he was talking to this guy. He's like, man, I'm scared. You don't want to work for Bush, man. He won't, like, anybody who <laughs> pisses him off, you're just dead. <laughs> well, just to come back to the topic of, you know, creepy politician pedophilia that I got into earlier, George H.W. Bush, whenever we talk about him, I just like to point out that uh, 
In Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal, there was this huge scandal. We've talked about it on the show before, but um, huge pedophile scandal in the in the states in the eighties, and uh, a whole bunch of kids came forward, basically saying that they that they were brought into this kind of just sick pedophile ring that involved top level politicians. And it almost, it, it, well, it did become a huge scandal and it almost broke, but of course it turned into a total whitewash. Everyone got away pretty much. But one of the child witnesses says that she was sure that George H.W. Bush was one of these violent pedophiles that was at these parties that these guys were putting on. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Blacken that name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've- I, I've heard of like the Franklin Bank scandal, but I haven't looked into it. And that's one of the things I came across when I first started like really looking into stuff. I was like, geez. But yeah, it definitely goes on to blackmail people, you know. They get to do whatever they want sexually, but then they also have like all this stuff over them to control mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting connections, too, that you made with Bush Sr. was that he opera- supervised the Iran Contra scandal or affair through the Phoenix program through this guy. Donald Gregg, who, like Harrison mentioned, you know, they have all these connections. And this this Donald Gregg, uh, he appointed the head of these uh, anti-drug operations in Florida. But in relation to the Phoenix program, I was wondering if we could get into that. Like, what is the Phoenix program and what was its influence? What is its influence uh, over, you know, these types of operations? Well, the best book on the Phoenix program is, of course, Douglas Valentine's The Phoenix Program. Uh, the Phoenix program is a program to find the Viet Cong sympathizers, the people that are, like, fighting to throw the Americans out of Vietnam and to, like, reunify Vietnam and make an independent country because they've been fighting for, like, 30 years or something. First they fought the Japanese, then they fought the French, then they had to fight the Americans. And they'd actually been fighting long before that. But in order to, like, fund those things, they had a whole network of civilian people that collected money and shared information and stuff like that. They're sympathizers. And so the Phoenix program was designed to find all these Vietcong sympathizers, torture them, get all a bunch of names of other sympathizers, kill them, and then go hunt those people and then kill them. But it also involved false flag terror. When they would assassinate people, they would try to make it look like the Vietcong did it. So they would sneak in and, like, cut someone to pieces, and they wanted to make people think it was the communists, but actually it was the CIA, Special Forces, and, like, their Vietnamese death squads that they trained down there, the Ranger Battalions, they called them. And also they used these same forces to, like, wage secret wars in the Cambodia and Laos. So basically, you know, the big torture assassination program, that kind of thing with the war on terrorists today, those exact templates for what's going on today where, you know, in theory, because, like, they're not actually fighting these terrorists, kidnap them, torture them, get some names, and kidnap those people, torture them, assassinate people. So on one hand, it was created to basically suss out the supporters of whatever power they wanted to destroy, and on the other, it was just to kind of train these nut jobs to just be these these uh, serial killer crazies. Yeah, definitely. It was supposed to have them as sympathizers, but of course, in reality, all these programs... People would use it to get revenge, you know. It's like, I don't like so-and-so down the street, so I'll give the Americans their name. You could threaten people, like, I'll put your name on this list if you don't give me, like, a hundred bucks so you can start blackmailing everybody. Well, it sounds a lot like, you know, how the Nazis operated and all somebody had to do would be to turn in their neighbor and give somebody they didn't like. Well, it's great that you mentioned the Nazis because... The U.S. recruited all the Nazis. The media likes to be like, oh, they just recruited these market scientists, you know. But really, they recruited these hardcore Nazi death squad people. These people were the ones that were, like, among the founding members of the American Special Forces, the Green Berets. 
And the reason they were, like, so convenient to keep secret is because Kaplan were, like, some of the war criminals wanted in Eastern Europe for, like, all the stuff they did with the Holocaust and the 27 million Russians they killed and, like, the 4 million Poles. And the Nazis killed way more people than people think. They think they just killed 6 billion Jews or something. They killed, like, 40 million people. Mm-hmm. Well, all the tactics of the Nazis were adopted by the Green Berets, and that was the template for trading these death squads to hunt down all the socialists and communists and labor leaders in all the countries of the world. I mean, it's happened in like 70 countries or something. Well, and you said that uh, you talk about the, the war in Latin America and all of the subversive activities that occurred there and in Africa and around the world. Um, and you talk about it in terms of, you know, the Third World War or World War Three, and how America didn't even pause to take a breath after World War Two before immediately initiating that. And so then that the recruitment of the Nazis and everything feeds into that, into creating that system then that eventually turned into that the Phoenix program, which uh, I think, what did they, they tortured just thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and they refined that down to, uh, you know, into manuals, which they took into like the School of Americas and with the Kubark torture manuals, and basically learned to refine torture to such a form using, you know, social science research, psychological research, and, you know, now when we see the people or when we did see, you know, the pictures of the people in the in Abu Ghraib or in the detention centers with the hoods over their their heads in those orange jumpsuits, you know, that was the outcome of decades and decades of training and, you know, sophisticated scientific research and just brutal psychopathic um, instinct. How to break the human spirit, how to, like, yeah. make people completely hopeless and just, yeah spend millions of dollars how to, like, destroy the human spirit. Great scientific research. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a great movie called Human Resources that goes into that a bit. And they just have this really heartbreaking scene where they had a 16-year-old kid that was caught up in that post-September 11th hysteria, and he was just, he got tortured. He was sitting there begging the Canadians, don't turn me back up with Americans. He's like, crying. It was just so sad. Yeah, you talk about that, you know, just right after 9-11, that a lot of people, you know, didn't, really catch on to is the, the mass roundup of people. Yeah, while they're flying the Saudis out, flying all the people that are funding it out of the country in special planes, they're like rounding up all these random Arab people and torturing them because they're pretending that they're fighting this war on terror. It's really disgusting. But yeah, that grew out of these plans during Iran-Contra. If they invaded Nicaragua, they were going to like round up all the Central American refugees because they were, like, claimed that they were terrorists because they were, like, linked to these guerrillas that they were, like, falsely labeling terrorists and didn't target civilians. They only targeted the military that was doing, waging these horrible war crimes. Mm-hmm. Right after September 11th, they put all those plans into action and, like, it formed part of, like, the Patriot Act and all the warrantless wiretapping and detention. Yeah, basically, they got to take over the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah, there's this great clip during the Iran-Contra hearings Mostly it was just a whitewash, but this guy asked Oliver North, he's like, is it true you had plans to suspend the Constitution and do all this stuff? And then Daniel Inouye, who's <laughs> this congressman from Hawaii, who actually was bought by the Israel Library, he's like, we have to talk about that in closed session. It's top secret. Yeah. Well, Peter Dale Scott, I think his newest book is The American Deep State, and he talks a bit about that. It's a really interesting story. And again, it's one of those connections that goes back to the 80s, the Reagan administration and the people involved in Iran-Contra that has just direct relevance for what's going on today. Because in the 80s, people like Cheney and Rumsfeld were working on these like continuity of government plans, which was basically like in 
in the event of some kind of huge national security emergency, there would be this kind of shadow government that would continue the, the work of the government. So they had all these plans set out, which included, like Inui said to, or asked Oliver North, about the suspending the Constitution, rounding people up and putting them in concentration camps, and militarizing the police. And then, coincidence, <laughs> on 9-11, Cheney and Rumsfeld, two of the guys that were actually working on these exact plans, got to actually put them into operation on 9-11. And so on 9-11, this, this continuity of government was put into practice. A state of emergency has been declared. And I think what most people don't realize or don't even know is that America is still under that state of emergency. It gets renewed every year or two. And, I mean, for all we know, the, the, the actual government of the United States may be is possibly not even the actual legitimate government of the U.S. It could be like this continuity of government thing that's been going on for the past 15 years. Well, and that's what it kind of seems like when we look at all these tentacles that operate. You can't classify the United States government as uh, any similar form that we see in, in any other country. You know, it, it's a completely different entity that reaches all over the world and, you know, is so covert and, you know, even has arms in many other governments uh, in, in other nations. When we talk about the United States, it's a very, I think, very fundamentally, it's, it's so different from any other form of nation that, that you know, we've ever seen. Well, I, I definitely agree. Like, it's not just the United States. It's all our allies. It's almost everybody. It's, it's like what was said. Anyone who's not with us is against us. There's only a couple of independent countries, and they're like the ones that everyone is trained to hate, like Russia or China or Iran. Mm -hmm. As long as you're like a, one of these Western European governments that just says whatever lies America says, like, yeah, I accept it, I believe it, like, I'll go along with whatever absurdity they come up with, then you're like, you know, one of the friends. I call it the excess of chaos because all of our allies, all the NATO countries, all like the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Japan and South Korea, they're all like this big alliance to destroy, <laughs> destroy all the countries that are still independent. Well, I just, wanted, I just wanted to come back to an earlier comment that the guys here made about the counterinsurgency, like doctrines and manuals. There's a, just a little interesting tidbit from, from the first article that you wrote. I'll just read it out a little bit here. Um, so all the same, white Russians, the Nazis, and many other fascists played a very important role in shaping the American doctrines of counterinsurgency. In fact, American army manuals were actually written from the Nazi perspective, claiming that instead of attempting to conquer the East, the Nazis had tried to liberate Eastern Europe, while partisan resistance forces that were fighting to liberate their lands from Nazi occupation were called terrorists. This attitude persists to this day wherever America is conquering and destroying some new country. They claim to be acting as liberators, while all resistance is labeled as terrorism. And this is no mere speculation on my part, but was thoroughly documented in Michael McClintock's Indispensable Instruments of Statecraft. So I just thought that was really interesting about the, I mean, just another little, just a little tidbit about the Nazi connection, that the, just how much influence that whole, whole worldview even had on, you know, what Americans call counterinsurgency, which is pretty much just torture and death squads. Absolutely. And, and propaganda. Yeah. And that goes back to World War I, too, with the generals and their mentality that they had towards the, the soldiers as they were sending them into the trenches. You know, basically, they, they saw that to kill as many soldiers as possible was the best way to discipline 
their workforce. You know, they had that. You know, it was a Nazi mentality. That's Nazi mentality's been around for a long time, of mass murder and you know industrial as in, industrial as you can get, and force as much as you can out of people, then just throw them to the wolves so that you don't have to feed them in old age. Um, I think that mentality's been in the West for quite some time. Well, definitely, at least for 500 years or so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out of Columbus, the start of slavery and all that. Mm-hmm. And just like, nobody knows how many hundreds of millions of people have died. But yeah, Michael McClintock's book is like an awesome book, everyone should check out. It was written before September 11th. I don't know if he would have thought it was a good idea to write afterwards, because it's just like all about how the U.S. uses terrorism. They don't call it terrorism, they call it like irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, counter-guerrilla, counter-terrorism counterinsurgency, but it's all the same tactics. False flag terrorism has always been a tactic of psychological warfare. It's all documented. Yeah, absolutely. Hugo, could you tell us a little bit about the WACL? The World Anti-Communist League It's a great story because all the fascists of the world, it's like a fascist Bilderberg meeting, kind of, where they would all get together every year, the El Salvadoran death squad leaders, former SS people that wanted to like take back Ukraine, take back Croatia. When the Soviet Union collapsed, I believe that they played a far more influential role in that process than people give it credit for. And that's why in Croatia, the Stasi were able to retake the country and install this fascist government. It wasn't covered in the media at all. The story we were fed was it's like these evil Serbs, they're the new Nazis, they're the problem. But the Croatians were the actual, like during the war, the Nazis had backed the Croatians. And the Croatians had carried out this genocide. And then after... After the end of the Cold War, like all of a sudden, mysteriously, these Croatian fascists that had been part of WACL take over all of Croatia. The West is backing them, Germany's backing them, NATO's backing them, and now we have Croatia. They're still in charge of it. And like the same thing kind of happened in Bosnia too, and in Kosovo. And now in Ukraine is like the newest example where you have like this fascist Ukrainians. The reason that Croatian fascism and Ukrainian fascism were kept alive so long after the end of World War II was because the CIA was funding them all through Wackel and they would have these big meetings and they would get all this money and they would be like top Reagan foreign policy advisors. The grandson of, of this top Ukrainian Wackel guy is like spreading propaganda today on Twitter. <laughs> This guy was called Lev Dobriansky. His daughter became a foreign policy advisor to Reagan, and now his grandson is spreading propaganda on behalf of the fascist Ukrainian government that they have installed now. Family business. Yeah. I'm sure his grandfather was up to something really suspicious because Reagan appointed an ambassador to the Bahamas, of all places. Why else would you go there except to launder money or possibly smuggle drugs or something? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's Ukrainian, so I can't think of him. <laughs> it's not like the Bahamas would come to mind when you think of where would you send this Ukrainian guy the description of Wackel and their kind of where they were influential I mean you mentioned Ukraine it also makes me think of Gladio because the Gladio operations NATO's Gladio was operating in Ukraine and what we've seen in Ukraine the coup and the neo-Nazi groups I mean that directly came out of basically NATO's support for these neo-fascist groups ever since the end of World War II in order to basically take back power after, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Is there, is there any kind of connection between WACL and, and Gladio? WACL would be kind of like the public face of fascism, like they'd all get together, but Gladio, those people were part of WACL too, you know. Just like the Operation Condor people, they were part of WACL. The Phoenix Hokan people were part of WACL. The Gladio is like part of WACL. Kind of like the covert arm Gladio has become like a code word for like false flag player, but also made of support for fascism. Wackle is kind of like a, a big, a huger umbrella of Gladio. 
Gladio would be like the secret NATO totally controlled thing, whereas Wacko is like a big party where like all the fascists get together and talk about what they want to do, but they're all, they go back and, you know, a lot of them are involved in Gladio. Hugo, could you go back a bit and talk about Taiwan? Yeah, Taiwan is sort of like the Israel of Asia, because <laughs> these Formosan people, they're like the separate people from the Chinese, but these Chinese nationalists, when they're losing the war, they conquered Formosa, and they had these poor Formosans under occupation since the 40s. Once they totally lost the war in China and Mao won, and the People's Republic of China was created, then their only base was Taiwan and some of these other islands. And from there, they were involved in the drug smuggling and... They needed this anti-communist fervor to maintain support for the thirteen thing and the world to say that Taiwan was the real China and that the billion people that live in China don't recognize them. They're nothing, you know. It's just a passing phase. <laughs> well, we conquer it someday kind of thing. And, but to fund themselves, they'd always been involved in drugs. Actually, it went back before the war. And, you know, Buzzy Siegel and them were selling heroin for the KMT and stuff like that. And Meyer mm-hmm. Lansky was all connected. For like all those famous gangsters and stuff, like that's where it came from. Wow. And so, uh, but anyway, yeah, they used this. They used this heroin money to fund the McCarthy hysteria that sparked off the Korean War. Also, they would become indispensable as an ally of America in a sense. It's the same in practically like every country. Like you said, there's the American Empire and there's its vassals, and then there's the few nations that kind of buck the trend. It seems like if you're crazy enough, then you can start controlling America instead of America controlling you, kind of thing. Like, if you are fascist enough, then suddenly America's like, okay, we'll, we'll do what you say. <laughs> well, I wanted to... Well, first, I had a few questions about the... If we go back to the actual Iran-Contra affair. So, the official story was that the U.S. was uh, interested in, in getting the hostages back now, can we talk about that hostage crisis? Because I think the official story is that it was the Lebanese Hezbollah, but I believe that Hezbollah said that they never had anything to do with it. Can we dig into that? Well, it's, it's sort of like a murky issue because Hezbollah was way more chaotic in the 80s before like Sheikh Nasrallah took control over it. So mm-hmm. I don't really want to say when they probably were sort of <laughs> involved in some of these kidnappings. Because like that, there's all these different kind of groups under the umbrella of Hezbollah. In the 90s, it sort of coalesced and became way more disciplined and orderly kind of guerrilla army type of organization. Whereas, like, in the mid-80s, it was just sort of being born. But, yeah, the people were being held hostage so Iran could get more weapons. But, really, it wasn't really about... As a releasing hostage thing, it didn't really work like the way that the October surprise had worked because they didn't really get hostages back. They would release them and then kidnap more if so they could get more weapons. Or like a, as a hostage rescue thing, the whole thing was a dis- like a disaster. Mm-hmm. Really, it was about giving Iran weapons so that Iran and Iraq would just fight each other and cause as much destruction as possible so that after that we could come in there and they'd be softened up for America, but America did Iraq for the t- past 27 years after that. The first mm-hmm. Gulf War, the sanctions, the second... Iraq war, the occupation, destruction, now we're like on our third Iraq war. We're supposed to be there to fight ISIS. It never ends, seemingly. So what do you think about the lifting of sanctions in, in Iran, and is there any backstory in Iran that you wanted to get into? What Pepe Escobar says is the Europeans are sick of boycotting Iran. They want to open them up for business. And like America, the smarter part of the foreign policy people, they want Iran back into the U.S. orbit, so they just stop persecuting Iran. But the other people want to destroy Iran, 
they get a lot of mileage out of vilifying Iran. So America has kind of a double policy. They want to be friends, but they also want to keep waging war on them. And obviously, I don't think it's really going to bring Iran into our orbit. It's like we're fighting them in Syria. We're fighting them in Yemen. We're fighting them in Iraq. It's like, I don't think they're going to become our friends while we're like waging war on them. Well, Hugo, you've been doing some some research on Iran recently. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Like the story of the rise of Khomeini it may be more, way more complex than I put it in. Like, first off, the Iranian revolution is sort of like a two-part revolution. First, it was like a democratic revolution at the beginning of the year, and it was sort of chaotic, and no one knew who to take over. And then Khomeini, like, was the power. But what I discovered was that the secret team weren't just involved with the Shah. They were involved with these Khomeini supporters mm-hmm. in the, for a couple of years before. So there's definitely some evidence that they might have preferred Khomeini to, like, some kind of other force arising in Iran, like a nationalist force or something. Socialist, so they were Khomeini is left evil. So yeah, there's evidence that the secret team was involved in installing Khomeini and in provoking the hostage crisis. Like they appointed this like one of Khomeini's followers as the head of security for the embassy, and then they was fired. But then he led the attack on the embassy. It's this guy. Just wait. Can you say that again, Hugo? You cut out there. This Iranian researcher named Farah Mansour. His research definitely showed there was like a connection between the two. So it's you know, an area for further research people should go into. Yeah, there was an article I just read, I think it was on Boiling Frog's Post, commenting on the story that had, that had come out. I think they were CIA cables or, or memos talking about the like the ongoing, not necessarily negotiations, but just talks with Khomeini. And Khomeini wanted to just have some kind of like agreement with the CIA. And but like you said, I mean, it's 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 pretty interesting. It'll be an, interesting to see if anything else comes out about that. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's what's cool about studying this, the secret side of history. Is it's like you always discover new things. You have to revise your whole picture sometimes. Yeah. It's like that, that's what makes it exciting to research. Well, Hugo, I think we're gonna end it there. To end off with, do you want to tell us uh, what you've been reading? Any books recently, or just any resources that you think? Um, you've been looking at recently that have really caught your interest? If people want to get into the subjects of, like, deep politics and deep history, the two best are Doug Valentine and Peter Dale Scott, definitely. Those are the authors I recommend. And what's the URL for your blog? Anti-imperialist-u.blogspot.com All right. Thanks for talking to us today, Hugo. There's just so much so much to talk about. We could probably go on and on and on, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll look forward to your next article, and uh, we'll go from there. All right? All right, cool. Thanks. Yeah, okay. thanks for coming on, Hugo. Thanks, Hugo. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, we're just doing a little personnel change over here for the second half of the show so we've got ilan in the studio right now hi everyone and we'll be here and joe will be joining us in just a few seconds um oh here he is joe are you there can you hear us joe i can indeed okay there's joe can you hear me yes can hear you mm-hmm. loud and clear Alrighty. just uh following up on uh, Hugo's blog, I just want to say that if you check out his articles, he always has a ton of great sources that you can go to, so like YouTube videos and podcasts and books. So for the Iran-Contra one, um, I've just been checking out some of the things that he's been linking to, and it's 
really great stuff. Like um, you can watch talks from Iran Contra from the eighties and podcasts from uh, the guy. I think you mentioned him in the interview, Dave Emery, or it's in the articles at least. This guy's been doing um, radio shows and podcasts for thirty years, and he gets into just a ton of stuff on especially kind of the fascist links and Nazis project paperclip kind of stuff and the involvement in all kinds of counterinsurgencies and secret warfare and stuff like that. So check it out. Um, lots of stuff. For, and I guess for now, moving on, um, we're going to cover some of the news from the past week because, I mean, it's like it's getting to the point where every week we say the last week has been just totally crazy. Um, and this week, <laughs> this last week is no real exception. Of course, last week we were talking about the coup in Turkey, so or the attempted coup, failed coup. So we'll give some updates about what's going on there. Um, but also, <clears throat> the breaking news from the past few days was the mass shooting in Munich, in Germany. And then just checking the news today, it looks like there's another kind of shooting going on in Germany, I believe, or something. I'll have to, I'll have to find the, the the headline, and we can get into that. But um, what do you guys want to talk about first? You want to talk turkey? Do some turkey talk. Gobble, gobble. Shoot some turkey. Uh, okay, well, yeah, let's talk about turkey a bit. So the biggest, well, the, the news coming out on that is focusing main, mainly on the, the purge, the aftermath of the coup, and with a lot of Western media focus on how anti-democratic Erdogan is in his uh, reaction to the, the the failed coup. There are something like sixty thousand people that have been targeted and lost their positions in government, uh, private and public positions. These would be in schools, charities, um, various ministries of the government, uh, the military. Now, out of these sixty thousand people, approximately thirteen thousand have been arrested. And that's just a fraction of the total number who have been detained because uh, they rounded up all these people and are slowly kind of going through and formally arresting several of them with specific charges. The rest, the ones that they can't um, arrest or they won't end up arresting, will be let go eventually. They can only be detained for, I believe, 30 days under the Turkish constitution. And out of those 13,000 that have been arrested, 9,000 of those approximately are military personnel including something like 2,300 military officers. So that's what's been going on for the past week. And the one of the big stories just from the past couple of days is um, reports about what these guys have been saying. So apparently some of the, some of the people who have been arrested are confessing and directly implicating Fatullah Gulen. Now, of course, the reaction to that from a lot of people will be, well, they're going to say that because they're probably being tortured. Well, if you just ignore that possibility, or, or just ignore that altogether and just focus on some, this other story, probably the biggest new um, revelation implicating Fatullah Gulen is that one of the, um, the high-level people that was taken hostage during the coup was the Chief General, Sta Chief General Staff Hulusi Akar. And they basically um, took him hostage, and the guys that took him hostage offered to put him in touch with Gulen, basically saying, oh, well, you know, you don't believe us, talk to Gulen. And so because he was the coup failed and he was eventually released, he's come out and revealed that. So that is, is pretty damning in itself, too. Also, over the past week, we had this 
this leak coming out in the Iranian news, the Fars News Agency, saying that they had talked to Turkish personnel and, or Turkish like intelligence, and they had sources in there who had gotten it from, I don't know, some other countries intelligence saying that uh, the Russians had warned the Turkish government and intelligence about the upcoming coup and that is probably the reason it failed and so there's been several people and several kind of news outlets taking that approach too which I think is probably pretty accurate the idea being that the there was um, there was knowledge that a coup was brewing probably for months and like we talked about last week the the first time it really made the news was in March of this year when the Western media, especially a bunch of the neocons in the Western media, came forward saying, uh, warning about a coup and kind of imp implying, suggesting that if there were a coup that the U.S. would not help Erdogan's government, which is pretty as close as a threat as you can get in the media from these kind of guys. They even wrote one of their infamous letters to Erdogan <clears throat> all through the 90s, in the 2000s, the neocons, the PNAC guys, were kind of famous for writing these open letters and having them published in big newspapers to people like Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi. And uh, I think they even sent one to Milosevic. But, <clears throat> excuse me, so there's this going on. So they, they, they have this idea that the coup is coming, and then um, the, it looks like in, probably in response to that, Erdogan and his government had planned, basically planned a purge of these Gulenists in in the military. And previously, in previous years, so in the past three or four years, of the Erdogan's government has gone after Gulenists, but not in the military. So now they, they basically decided to go after the Gulenists in the military and planned it for, I think it was planned for happening this week. So presumably... Once they found out about this, they decided to move the coup up a few days, and they planned it for Friday night, but at 3 in the morning. Now, the story is that this is what the Russians were warning Erdogan about, that they, had, that they got the intelligence um, that day and, knew, and learned that the, the coup had been moved up to this day at this time. And so then, knowing about it, the um, Erdogan's intelligence basically figured out what was going on and grounded the military, uh, grounded all troops in their barracks, and so they were all kind of on alert that this was going to happen by, by early afternoon on Friday. And then the coup plotters got wind of this and, and said, okay, well, it's now or never, and so launched it at like, what was it, 9 or 10 p.m., several hours before they'd planned on doing it, and that's one of the main reasons that they, the coup failed, is that they just launched it too early. When you're launching a coup, you want, to, you want to do it in the middle of the night when everyone's asleep, so people wake up and it's already happened. They did it late in the evening when everyone was still awake, and because they hadn't managed to get full control of the media, Erdogan managed to get on, on the air on CNN Turk via FaceTime and call everyone on the streets, and by that time, I mean, there was nothing they could really do. They could have tried to escalate into a civil war, but that just would have been disastrous as well. So those are, I think those are the, the kind of the main highlights for me for the, the past week of news on Turkey. Yeah, and, and just to back it up a little, uh, the whole reason, as we understand it, that the coup took place uh, was because, well, it, it might have been in progress um, many months before for various other reasons, but certainly the nail in the coffin uh, according to the West's perception of Erdogan, 
is his rapprochement with uh, with Russia. And uh, th- this was uh, big news a few weeks ago. Um, Erdogan uh, making uh, conciliatory statements towards Russia for the downing of the uh, the bomber um, of several months ago, and basically um, trying to reestablish uh, economic and other types of ties with Russia. Um, and j- just to bring this up to date, uh, you know, hot on the lips of of many in Turkey right now is this meeting that's scheduled between Erdogan and Putin sometime early in August, where they will probably be uh, talking not only about um, the uh, the gas or oil uh, project, the Turk Stream, I think it was called, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, shelved um, some time back, but uh, probably a whole other set of security considerations, considering that... Uh, this this attempt at a coup uh, in Turkey is probably not the last attempt we'll see at uh, at destabilizing Erdogan's government. No, and I don't think um, I don't necessarily think there will be another kind of traditional coup attempt. That's what that's the first thing that Sabel Edmonds had said, and she's an expert on on Turkey. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where she's from. But she, so she was viewing this initially as like a a test run, a dry run. But I don't think so. I think this was the real deal, and they kind of put all their eggs in one basket. And now that it's failed, I mean, what can they do through the military and, like, the existing power structures in, in Turkey? They're all being rounded up and thrown in prison. So I think the what's left now are the other options, kind of the more covert options of destabilization. We'll just have to we'll see where we'll, – we'll see where that goes. But on the subject of Russia and Putin, just another insight into what was going on during the coup was that – Putin was apparently the first foreign leader that um, that Erdogan talked to on the phone, which is telling in and of itself. And right right when that happened, um, in the one of the focus pieces I wrote about it, I'd said that. I mean, my my view of it, my kind of speculation is that for the Russians, the the relationship, the new kind of renewed relationship with Turkey, is very conditional. Like there are some big heavy conditions attached to it. It's not just uh, it's not this unconditional. Um, you know, love and friendship going on, and uh, that was kind of confirmed for me last night or this morning when uh, there was a news, a news article on a statement from Sergei Lavrov, I believe, Russia's foreign minister, and he essentially said this is conditional on Turkey's approach to the war in Syria. Basically, they're going to do what we want them to do in Syria, or we're not going to be very happy about it, and now they probably won't be either. So it really looks like if... It, well, to me, it just really looks like Turkey did, Erdogan did get serious about changing the policy in relation to Russia and Syria, and that it wasn't all talk, and that's why this coup was put into motion. And now it's kind of totally backfired for the U.S., because having failed, it will just push Turkey even harder and further in that direction. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. And um, there's, well, interesting and horrifying at the same time. I mean, if you look at just the past week's events in Syria, um, a couple things going on. First of all, in the north, the this, the U.S.-backed rebels in the north, uh, the Kurds, SDF, Syrian Democratic Forces, 
these are mainly mainly Kurdish forces, forces and uh, Arab forces in the north, and they are um, trying to retake this northern town of Manbij. And this is where last week the U.S. was accused of, well, and France was accused of dropping all these bombs and killing hundreds of civilians. And they've just, um, I mean, they didn't really, they didn't deny it at all. It's pretty certain that it happened. And they said, oh, well, yeah, we're not going to stop bombing. You know, we're going to take back the city. So there's that going on in the north. Then in in further, you know, closer to Aleppo, there's this U.S.-backed group, um, something Alzenki. And these were the guys that um, beheaded this 12-year-old Palestinian boy, pulled him out of the hospital where he was getting blood transfusions, and put him on the back of a truck and cut his head off, videotaped it, and these were the guys being supplied with U.S. tow missiles and who were on this official list of U.S.-backed moderate rebels. So the U.S. is getting a lot of flack for that, of course, because, I mean, it's like we didn't really need any more confirmation of it, but it still comes, and it's still coming, that there is no such thing as a moderate rebel in Syria, and the guys that they're calling moderate rebels are just as bad as ISIS. And, I mean, I wouldn't recommend watching the video, but you can look at the pictures and see for yourself what these moderate, how moderate these moderate rebels are. Now, if there's any good news that come out of that, um, again, I believe Fars News reported that the Syrian special forces sent out a commando unit to basically hunt down these guys, and so apparently last night they hunted them down and killed them. So... What do you say? Yeah. Well, j just to add to some of what you were saying about uh, Erdogan's choice as it's now presented to him by Russia, uh, it seems like he's already taken a few tentative steps in the, in the direction of stopping his support for the jihadis uh, and called back some of his uh, intelligence people from Syria. Yeah, and coincidentally, in, that, in those news reports, it came pretty much pretty soon right after the coup, they were... Again, Fars News Agency reported that Turkish intelligence kind of agents, the, the guys running the show in northern Aleppo, were getting pulled out of, out of the region back into Turkey. Mm -hmm. And the group that they cited was this Alzenki group, the same group that then beheaded this 12-year-old this Palestinian. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, well, just as an interesting connection. So, But apparently, who knows, it sounds like... I, I think it's probably true that the, the Turks are pulling some of their assets, their high-level assets out, and they're just going to leave the rest to, to their fate. Well, like you were saying, it's going to be very interesting to see how this pans out. Uh, when you listen and, and think about Erdogan, you, you don't exactly uh, uh, envision or, or perceive a, uh, a stable uh, leader there. Um, but uh, if anything, it seems that it's become very clear to him at this point uh, about who his friends are, or at least who he can be uh, allied with, who isn't going to stab him in the back. And, um, and like you were saying, Harrison, you know, w whatever future uh, covert aggression the U.S., NATO, CIA tries to employ against Erdogan isn't going to come in the form of a coup. Uh, it is going to come in, in the form of some kind of hybrid um, 
warfare, uh, some kind of covert destabilization plan that uh, that's going to come from possibly a very different angle. Um, so, yeah, we, we just have to see, and uh, it'll be interesting to hear what statements come out of Erdogan and Putin's meeting in a couple of weeks, uh, what agreements will be made, and, um, and how closely Erdogan will follow through on those agreements. Well, there was one more story that I found really rich from the past week, and this was the report that first came out in the Wall Street Journal that Russian, the Russian bombers had bombed this joint U.S.-U.K. base in eastern Syria hmm. where they were training these moderate rebels. And, and this is probably the group that they're, they're calling the New Syrian Army. And so it came out in the Wall Street Journal, and at first Dmitry Peskov just gave kind of this sort of denial, saying he had no knowledge of it, and it was a question that would be better directed to the Ministry of Defense. Well, now um, Lavrov, I I'm pretty sure it was Lavrov. No, no, it was the it was one of the one of the military big generals, Konashenkov, I think. He said he basically admitted it, and said, "Well." It's the U.S.'s fault. If, you, if you're not going to tell us where mm -hmm. your, your moderate rebels are and where your bases are, then there's nothing to protect them from being bombed by our, by our bombers. Now, so I, I just thought this was pretty hilarious because from the very beginning, of course, the U.S. was saying and all the media were saying, well, the Russians are bombing our rebels. They're bombing our guys. And there was no kind of like explicit acknowledgement that, yeah, we're, we're targeting U.S. Um, rebels and U.S bases where they're training these rebels it was kind of just left unsaid and so now they're just basically saying it yeah we're bombing your guys and if you don't tell us where they are we're going to keep bombing them because we can't tell where they are you know wink wink so it, that kind of raised the raised the stakes a bit i think especially coming after this all those meetings between putin and lavrov and Kerry. joe quinn do you want to weigh in on any of this uh, <clears throat> um, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you guys have pretty much, pretty much said it. I mean, uh, I thought it was interesting though to think about the kind of timeline of stuff uh, in, in Turkey in terms of uh, the coup. I mean, initially last week when we were talking about it, we we talked about it as a, as a kind of rush job, you know, that it was a bit amateurish and a rush job. And since then, more details, uh, since more details have come out, it's kind of, we kind of um, have realized that it, that it wasn't really a rush job, you know, and um, it wasn't really that amateur, amateurish either. It was quite, uh, was quite serious and it was only, it seems, as you were saying, it seems that with the help of, of the Russians, uh, with their their kind of eyes and ears, their electronic eyes and ears in Syria, and uh, their base in Syria, that they were able to intercept and on off the coast in the Mediterranean on the ships, they were able to kind of uh, pick up on military, the kind of military coup plotters, mm -hmm. uh, their, their communications, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it was pretty serious, and, and, and Erdogan missed the... Uh, Miss being captured, and I think that was a major part of it, not capturing him, not uh, kind of silencing him and, and allowing him, giving him any any means to get on TV, which he did via FaceTime, whatever it is, um, and, and speak 
uh, to the people and call them out in the streets, that was pretty significant, you know. Um, but yeah, so it came. It seems it came down to to Russian intel and maybe the Iranians helping a little bit, mm-hmm. giving some advice. Um, and this is all, um, you know. Obviously, uh, you notice that uh, you know Erdogan, Erdogan knows who his friends are because the only people who, well, the people who helped him during this coup, attempted coup against him effectively, uh, was Russia and Iran. And mm-hmm. it took uh, it took the U.S. government quite a long time to actually come out and actually say anything when everybody knew a coup was going down. I think they waited several hours before actually seeing anything at all, you know. So that's quite uh, quite telling, I think, about... Uh, uh, it's quite telling to, to Erdogan and to the Turks, and it's quite telling uh, about who their friends are, and it's quite telling... Uh, about who really was uh, behind it or who certainly wanted it, was happy to have it happen and who wasn't. America, uh, at the very least, was happy. It appears to have been happy to see it happen and would have been happy if uh, Erdogan was gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And Russia and Iran did not want to see that happen and did what they could to make sure it didn't and happily they, they stopped it, you know. And, you know, people need to take a People need to remember here that the approach we're taking is that uh, anything bad that happens to America, I mean, in terms of what the American government and its intelligences and military is doing uh, anywhere in the world today, anything that happens that to 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 uh, to kind of <laughs> screw them over, for want of a better expression, uh, is good uh, as far as we're concerned. Uh, of course, people might think that's a bit simplistic and you can't just, you know, say, yay, America got screwed, you know. Um, but yeah, you can. We have good reason to, <laughs> we have good reason to kind of think that, you know, and to take that approach. Uh, and because we know the history of, of what America has done and, and does and still does today, and we know their perfidy and their lies and their manipulations, and they're basically just kind of they want to take over the world and, and enslave effectively as many people as possible. So anything that stops them doing that is good. Yeah. From even just from a humanist point of view, that, that's not anything uh, that's good. So, um, but uh, it was interesting just a bit about Erdogan. I think Erdogan missed being captured by about uh, about three, uh, 30 minutes or 30 or 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. From, yeah, there are, uh, there are different reports. Helen Mormara, yeah, some say like 15 but minutes, some say like an hour. Time. Yeah, yeah, mm. so he got out of there just in time and. Uh, it seems, if you factor in the factor in the idea that Russian Russia was had, had warned him in advance and had warned the Turkish you know people aligned with or Erdogan's people uh, in Turkish intelligence and in the military and um, and in the government had warned them in advance. Um, that was really the deciding factor because this would have gone down very differently. Otherwise, it, that that the fact that Russia did that allowed for Erdogan effectively to escape by a very uh, small margin to escape being captured and even possibly killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that um, the story about his plane, so they, these guys arrive, and apparently the story is that uh, this uh, kind of special ops team arrived in helicopters to his um, hotel he was staying in on, on the coast in Marmara, and uh, they didn't know effectively that uh, the coup had been brought forward um, because uh, Russia had given 
information warned Erdogan and co that a coup was coming early in the day on, on the 15th. And uh, then the coup plotters got wind of this, that there had been a tip-off. So they decided to bring, as you were saying, Harrison, they decided to bring forward their coup. But apparently this team that went to Marmara to get rid of Erdogan, which should have been the first, really the first uh, the first blow struck in any coup, is to remove the the, the, the president or whatever, the, the leader effectively, who can rally the people. You want to get him off scene straight away. So they arrived at about 3 o'clock in the morning as per the original plan because those guys had apparently been told that, um, uh, you know, that, that, that they, had to, they had been told they had to get Erdogan and, uh, to, and where he was. But they had also, um, because of the secrecy surrounding it, they all handed in their uh, cell phones and other electronic devices, basically, so that they, in an effort to avoid anyone finding out that they were going for Erdogan, right? They wanted, basically, mm. communication silence. But this caused a problem for them in that because they had no, there was no way to contact them uh, because they were stationed somewhere in the, uh, uh, to go and get him. Um, they didn't know that uh, it had been brought forward. So they stuck to the original timeline of 3 a.m. So they went to get him at about 3 a.m. And that was meant to be the first blow, but they didn't realize and they couldn't be contacted and be told that it had already started uh, because of the tip-off. And as it turned out then, because of that, Erdogan wasn't there. So then they went, and it just shows, it just shows you the, the, the determination of these people, obviously, because even though then they missed him, uh, then they send up two um, F-16s, two Turkish jets, up to find his plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we know the story. They want to they uh, get his plane or shoot down his plane. But they have a problem then, because I think the idea was that they would at least be able to, if they got him in, in a hotel, they would at least have been able to... Um, you know, capture him. They may not have wanted to kill him, but they wanted to capture him and kind of um, humiliate him and that kind of thing. Um, so the problem is that when he when he takes off in his jet, and then they have to send up uh, two F-16s, they, they don't have really many options there. You know, I mean, at that point, it's well, you're going to shoot it down, right? Um, but apparently, they didn't. And the story goes that they didn't shoot shoot it down because um, they switched the. The, the pilot of, of Erdogan's Learjet switched, changed his transponder code to match that one, the transponder code of a, a Turkish Airlines plane that was in the area, thereby making uh, the plane indistinguishable effectively. So they weren't willing to possibly shoot down a Turkish Airlines plane uh, thinking it was Erdogan's. Um, but I, I, I mean, this is all speculation. This is information coming out of, as you mentioned, Harrison, information coming from Turkish government officials and blah blah blah, unnamed people. But I, I wonder also that uh, if it wasn't the case that I would have, well, let's put it this way, it would have been funny in line with uh, Russia bombing. Uh, <laughs> you just mentioned Russia bombing the CIA and MI6 uh, bases in, in in southern Syria, which was fun. Um, it would have been fun as well if those two F-16s that were kind of had targeted or were had locked on their radars onto. Erdogan's jet, if they suddenly found that they were being targeted, mm-hmm. or that they had been, you know, because when you're, when you're in a jet, basically, if you're, if you're uh, locked onto by any radar from another jet or from uh, an anti-aircraft missile, for example, uh, your plane knows it, and you get this warning, and you've got a choice, you get the hell out of there, or the chances are you're going to be blown out of the sky. 
So it would have been funny, not just speculation on my part, but it would have been funny if that's what happened and the, uh, the locking radar came from uh, one of Russia's S-400s in, in northern Syria, you know? Mm-hmm. There's actually some speculation in the Russian media and blogosphere that it was actually Russian um, tech, uh, what do they call it? In, uh, Jam- jamming, yeah, jamming technology, electronic warfare. electronic warfare, yeah. That because if you read the the original reports that were, I believe, published first in Reuters, they talked to, like you said, these anonymous Turkish officials that told the story, and they said that the two jets. Well, first of all, Erdogan's jet had two F-16s, um, kind of guarding With it, it yeah. escorting it, mm-hmm. and these two F-16s locked on their radars to to Erdogan's three planes, essentially, and that they didn't mm-hmm. fire, but they didn't know why they didn't fire. Now, so I, right. I think there's, yeah, there's a few possibilities, like the ones you mentioned. There's also, at least mm-hmm. the, some of the Russians think that it might have been uh, the Russians jamming the 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 coup plotter's jets um, targeting systems or uh, guided yep. systems. Because, I mean, obviously, uh, Russia Russia here is is very interested in was very interested in stopping uh, uh, a coup against Erdogan. I mean, that's the best. Um, I suppose that's the, the best information or the best uh, evidence we have, uh, strangely enough, of U.S. involvement, the, which is the strength or the, the the determination or the enthusiasm with which Russia wanted to stop Erdogan being being deposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's it's a good rule of thumb. Basically, you know, anything that Russia wants, uh, America doesn't, and vice versa. Generally speaking, you know. Yeah. Uh, so when and, and it can also lead you to 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 implicate to be able to implicate people in various events like this one, for example. Uh, if Russia uh, doesn't want Erdogan to be deposed, then you can bet your ass that the U.S. does. So, but it's also. Um, it's also interesting. Like so, so, Russia, Russia doesn't want Turkey to to or there to be a coup in Turkey because they figure you know they have their own analysis of it and long term analysis and the whole geopolitical uh, you know details of the of the situation in the Middle East over the past few years with Turkey and Syria etc. So they uh, they don't want that to happen. They know why. They know more or less who's behind it. They know what the point or what the what the goal of deposing Erdogan would be. Yep. More than likely, it would be to uh, it would involve in some way or other screwing over Russia, which pretty much, if you haven't noticed, apart from maybe the terror attacks um, in in Europe and in the US, for example, uh, pretty much every other significant event um, on the geopolitical stage has uh, in recent years has been for the purpose of screwing over Russia and has been led by uh, the US and to a certain extent the EU. But if so, if, if if Russia provided intelligence that saved Erdogan from being captured from his hotel, that was uh, the first time in that evening that they more or less, well, potentially saved his life. Mm-hmm. And then stopping, if if they did in some way, uh, as you were speculating, Harrison stop uh, or prevent these F-16s from shooting down Erdogan's plane, then that's the second time. So it's like building up some serious um, uh, you owe me 
Erdogan mm-hmm. uh, and uh, for Russia, you know, I mean, it's, it's and like you were saying, I think Alan that and they are harsh and they want the Russia is going to want uh, some serious changes, going to be some serious uh, strings attached or details attached to a rapprochement between Russia and Turkey. Uh, and of course, on top of that, then is the leverage of you know in any meeting where Erdogan's kind of sticking his heels, saying, "No, I don't want to change that." Say, Erdogan, you basically owe us your life twice. So, uh, you know, just shut, just shut, shut, shut up. So, yeah, it's all uh, it's all pretty interesting uh, in that sense. But uh, again, it's these people don't talk much about it, and you only get bits and pieces, and you just have to put the details together based on uh, a broad uh, understanding of the situation. You know, and you can and you can fill in the pieces. You know, fill in the details. Well, speaking of that, maybe we can attempt to do a little bit of that on the recent shooting in in Munich. So, if anyone hasn't been mm. reading the news, this this happened. When was it? Was it? What's that? Was it just Friday night? It's a machete. No, no. This, yeah, no. Today's oh, no, the one with the machete. Okay. So that just that's just breaking news. Yeah. There's a. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll go on that one first, just because there's fewer details. Yeah. So this guy. Um, I'll just read the report from RT. It's short. So at least one person has been killed and two more injured in an incident in the German town of Reutlingen. A man wielding a machete apparently randomly attacked passersby in the street. The man was identified as a Syrian asylum seeker, aged 21, who was previously known to law enforcement. The motives of the man are still unclear. The perpetrator had an argument with a woman near the central bus terminal in Reutlingen, and during the altercation severely injured the woman using a machete. The woman died of her injuries at the scene. The perpetrator was then detained near the scene in minutes after the incident, but managed to injure another woman and a man. The eyewitnesses described the attacker to build as fully insane, adding that he tried to attack a police car with his machete. He acted alone, and mm-hmm. there is no further threat to the public, they added. Yeah. So that's pretty much all the news we have on that so far, I think, I think we're going to see more and more of those kind of uh, attacks. Um, you could even put the, to some extent, you could put the Nice attack in that uh, category and also the the other attack in Munich mm-hmm. uh, in that same category of people just kind of kind of losing the plot, but to sort of, you know, to, to a large extent with good enough reason or, or understandable, not to justify what they do or anything, but um, that, I mean, in this case, a Syrian refugee, I mean, I suppose it's not possible really for us to imagine the kind of uh, experiences of, of that guy and the trauma that he may well have experienced over the past four or five, four or five years in Syria and then uh, as a refugee in Germany from Syria. Uh, but to, to say that this is uh, shocking or, uh, well, it's shocking, but to say that it's uh, unexpected or we have to do something about this is it's so horrendously obtuse on the part of politicians, I'm sure they're going to say this, because, I mean, look what they've been doing. They've basically been the same politicians in Europe and the U.S. who would condemn this uh, this kind of an attack uh, have been directly, directly, or are directly responsible for fomenting and encouraging the civil war in Syria over the past, uh, not the civil war, but the war in Syria over the past four or five years that produces uh, trauma that leads people like this guy to do this. Mm-hmm. So, for any any Western politician to to stand up there and condemn this and say we need more security or something is just, I mean, like like Valls did after uh, after the the 
the lease attacks is just uh, unconscionable, and those people need to be need to be booted out. I mean, as as quickly as possible. I mean, that's that's. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw, but when Valves went down to some kind of a ceremony down in Nice after the Nice attacks, I mean, there were a lot of people there in the crowd, all shouting for him to resign and calling him a, an assassin, basically calling him a murderer and a criminal and an assassin, and he has to resign because of the kind of things he said, which was, you know, why well, you're just going to have to live with it, just just deal with it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so these people have some serious cojones like to, to come out and say that kind of stuff they're so detached from the situation that they think people are so stupid you know that uh, it's, it's shocking you know um, but well, uh, yeah I, I would just add well the other thing I just wanted to go ahead oh go ahead Joe well I was just going to mention another little story on the on the Munich uh, and Nice attacks um that there's there's an article in sat that we put up it was actually it's it's an article from uh, a local nice newspaper that was just uh, published um yesterday um about uh, a local nice newspaper called nice matin uh, and it's on sat in english um where they reported on this guy a german independent journalist called uh, richard um Gutjar, who was the guy you probably saw it? A lot of people saw the video in Nice of the, of from a balcony of a hotel, uh, the truck starting to starting its kind of rampage through the crowd. Uh, you don't see very much; it's from a distance from the other side of the road. But this was a video that was one of the first ones released of of this uh, truck attack in Nice, and that was filmed by this guy, this German independent journalist Richard Gutjar. And about one week later, <clears throat> so he happened to be there. He was in. Um, he was in France by uh, uh, by his own admission that he was there for, um, well, he was there on a long weekend to experience the July 14th festivities for the first time. And he just happened to be in a hotel directly opposite the area where this guy basically started to drive into people. And then a week later, so he's from Munich, so a week later he's back at home in Munich and he just happens to be outside the shopping mall where this other guy in Munich starts to shoot people. Uh, now you can say that's interesting or strange coincidence. In fact, the Nice Matin called it a tragic coincidence that this guy was at both places, you know, perfectly positioned to record these videos and upload them, to, upload them to the internet. Uh, but the only thing that would maybe skew it a little from just a bizarre coincidence is that this guy is married to an Israeli politician. Uh, who is, you know, an avowed Zionist and kind of Israel firster, and uh, she's, there's no mention that she's in Mossad, but there never is. Um, uh, but she did military service. Uh, she was the rank of lieutenant in basically military intelligence before she before she finished. So uh, that's an interesting little detail. I mean, it's hard to tease it out, but you got to say it's pretty pretty unusual, you know, that. Um, that this guy who, for the first time ever in France, he'd never been to France on the 14th of July before, just happens to decide to go to Nice and happens to decide to book into a hotel right opposite where this guy, this this guy in the truck decided to start his, his killing spree. And then he went back home for some R&R and just happened to be walking down the street and happened to stop outside the shopping mall where another terrorist mm-hmm. was uh, shooting people. Well... Uh, 
just on the on the point of this uh, this new uh, knife attack, this new machete attack, there was another one actually several days ago, where a young um, man from Afghanistan who was only seventeen had uh, had attacked passengers in a German train in Bavaria, and um, what had happened there? I mean, this is just—it's—it's it's almost like the same story practically, except uh, he was gunned down by the German police. And um, you know, after this occurred, uh, there was a—I think a—a um, a German MP who came out in criticism of the police, who said, you know, he was only armed with a knife. Uh, you know, I don't believe you had to kill him. And um, she was jumped on by the German head of police, figuratively speaking, uh, who who totally belittled her role and the role of all MPs in in, uh, in the parliament there, and and kind of um, reduced her opinion to to nothing. So uh, just another kind of dot there, and an indication that. Uh, the, the police state mentality that, that we've seen in the U.S. certainly for a number of years and that has also visited France, um, especially in the past year, is now kind of spread to Germany. Um, and, uh, it, you know, the, the, this, this kind of pathological, um, you know, kill first, ask questions later uh, mm. idea is... I think becoming the rule in, instead of the exception. Mm -hmm. Well, just on yeah, it's Sam. Um, go ahead, go ahead, Harjan. Well, I was just going to comment on something that I, a similarity that I, I'm seeing between the Nice and the Munich attacks. If you look at both of them, they both appear to be these kind of lone wolf guys in a sense that snap at some point and then commit these these uh, massacres. Now, in the case of the Munich kid. Um, just to give some background of what's been what's been coming out just in the past day or so, apparently this this kid was um, Iranian German. He was born in Germany. He was so fully German, but he had uh, dual Iranian citizenship as well. He was a young kid, um, what twenty twenty one or something, and he had he'd apparently been he was depressed. He was on medication. He said in the video um, that was filmed of him on the on the top of the parking lot, he said he'd been bullied for seven years. There are reports from his friends saying that he was, um, well, friends and people who knew him saying he was quiet, shy. Also, he was a, a, a gamer, and in these games that we, he would play, he would threaten people. Uh, the people he was playing with, he was going to kill them. And when the police searched his apartment, he lived with his parents, They and they searched his room, and they found just a whole bunch of material on mass shootings. So they found the, uh, a book written by an American, I believe, uh, called Why Kids Kill, I think is the name of it. They found printouts on all kinds of shootings. They said he was obsessed with mass shootings. And this happened, of course, on the five-year anniversary of Anders Breivik's um, mass shooting. And so this is the background that they're giving. They're saying that he has no ties to anyone else. He'd been planning this, it seems, like they, well, the German police say they think he'd been planning this for a year that he'd had the idea to do something like this uh, at least a year ago, and that he just he did it uh, a couple days ago. Now, if you look at the the Nice attack, similar story. Um, again, this guy was uh, had some mental illness. 
history of violence. And while he too seems to have um, committed the act on his own, French police are saying that while they can't find any links with any kind of terrorist groups like ISIS, that he did have accomplices in the sense of the people who he got the weapons from, people whom he was in contact with and texting about getting the truck. So, like, apparently he, they say he received this text from this one guy saying, um, oh, well, you know, load the truck with a whole bunch of you know, something to weight it down and then just run through, uh, take the brakes off and, and let it go. And so it looks like he was in contact with some people that were maybe maybe had some kind of influence over him in this attack. But again, mm-hmm. they say that he had been planning this for um, at like at least a year or something like that, or several months at least. And mm-hmm. so, so I'm wondering. I'm just curious what uh, what's the reality you know going on here? Are would these did these guys in did these people involved and uh, in contact with the with Boulel in in Nice, did they have what was their role exactly? I mean, they're all arrested now. Um, who knows what what will come out of that? And I you, go ahead. I bet you they're not. I bet you they're not. I bet you they're not going to uh, find anything there other than people who simply, uh, you know, who who are similar of a similar mindset to the guy who actually drove the truck, but you know, mm-hmm. not as yeah. Not as unhinged as him, and uh, and just kind of like, or yeah, let's let's do this. You know, I mean, you find lots of people who, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot of people in Europe uh, who are, you know, anti-establishment, and and certainly amongst the Muslim community, there's certain going to be a certain amount of people who are who are very anti-Western and stuff, and and don't like France very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if they hear some guy who they see, know this guy who drove the truck and he's a bit unhinged and stuff and he's talking about going and killing a bunch of French people, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're maybe willing to say, yeah, you should do that, you know, yeah, do it, but they're not going to do it themselves, you know what I mean? Those kind of people who'll stand behind you and say, stand behind and say kind of like, yeah, you do that, yeah, you go do it, you know? Maybe not even knowing that, or thinking that he would do it or what are the implications. There's a lot of stupid people out there as well, stupid, angry people, you know? So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, what's going on in the sense of, it seems, for me anyway, with the Nice attack, it kind of marked uh, a change to a certain extent, that there was a change in the air in the sense of that this was kind of one of the first times where a major terror attack did not have some involvement of shadowy figures who then disappeared from the scene. Mm-hmm. Um afterwards and never get caught and it gets turned into a lone wolf kind of uh, event it seems to me this pretty much was the first genuine kind of lone wolf if you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, terror attack uh, as in it was a real terror attack by a really angry person a really disturbed person and we're going to see more and more of these because I mean people, I'm sure people listening can um can relate to the idea that the state of the world and when these things, events that have been happening over the past, well, really for the past 10 or 15 years, but increasingly in, in, in recent years um, with the with the serious situation and um, the immigrants and, and you know, the, the deaths and the, the police brutality in America, it, it all serves to really uh, leave, leave just the average person, you or me or anybody else, uh, kind of fairly unsettled, you know, uh, it, it has direct effect on a lot of people, I think, and there are some very uh, susceptible, fragile 
<coughs> fragile people in society who that who are feeling that as well, but uh, who are you know acting on it, uh, who, who are um, going out and doing and are, are prepared or in a position or susceptible susceptible to going out and actually uh, you know just going postal as we were talking about last week, mm-hmm. and again this would have to be the the the, the fact that that is the case. Uh, the blame for that would really have to be put at the door, at the, laid at the doorstep of of the Western powers, who have over the past, you know, really since nine eleven, in particular, have gone about the process of messing this world up, screwing this world up, causing causing untold suffering and chaos and death, uh, with a real gusto, you know, with real enthusiasm, and that can't but have an effect on on pretty much everybody in the planet to one extent or another. Um, so you know, if if these these people like Manuel Valls, French president or French prime minister or German politicians or American politicians, if I mean it's totally disingenuous for them to turn around and blame anybody, they just need to look in the mirror. But of course, they're not going to do that because um, they, uh, you know, looking in a mirror means like kind of reflecting on your actions, and psychopaths tend not to do that, you know. So yeah, and of course, uh, you know, even if they're lone wolf acts perpetrated by folks who are unstable. It just serves the war on terror nar- narrative further. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, just some couple of points about the uh, shootings in Munich, um, which which seem interesting, is that there were reports actually of uh, a total of four shooters, uh, three having mm-hmm. gotten away, uh, which is reminiscent right. of the... Uh, the shootings that we heard about in Dallas uh, against the cops uh, who were um, who were present during the Black Lives Matter protest. So once again, you know, one that's, one that's shooter some, some, who dies, some, and then something that I really like to yeah. I'd really like to figure that out. You know, yeah. I mean, what is going on with that? Because it's been so common, you know, mm-hmm. over particularly in the U.S. Because that's where most of these kind of mass shootings have happened. You know, high-profile ones with a lot of deaths. And on every occasion, it's the immediate reports of more than one person, and then invariably gets turned into a lone wolf. And uh, I just love to understand what the mechanism is behind that, or what causes that to happen. Assuming it's genuine, mm-hmm. because of course we can very easy to understand it if you assume it not to be genuine, as in it's it's bullshit. There were more than one. Uh, shooters, uh, more than one shooter. There was more than one shooter, and and the rest were the rest were part of some kind of team that were involved in it and got away. And uh, no one's no one's interested in looking for them because someone figures out or a word is passed down. Drop that story. It's a lone wolf, you know. Uh, but in the case like Munich, for example, you know, is there something about eyewitnesses and in, in that kind of a situation that would lead people to tend to? Uh, report uh, gunfire coming from more than one place. Is it easy for that to happen when you only have one person shooting a gun? It's so easy for eyewitnesses, several eyewitnesses, to say there was definitely more than one shooter. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I'd, I'd. This is something I want to look into on um, eyewitness testimony because I haven't really researched it and gone into any kind of scientific studies on it, but just. From the, the little bit I've read, I'd say, prob- and just the little bit I know about human psychology, I'd say it's definitely probably or probably possible, given certain conditions. So I think that there might be 
different explanations in different circumstances. So, of course, I think absolutely in some examples it is multiple shooters who then get covered up. But in others, I think it probably is possible for something to to be um, for just bad memory, especially during a traumatic event. Now, in the Munich case, I haven't read the direct statements or you know heard or seen the the video of these people making these statements to know exactly what they say they saw, because I can imagine um, in a in a tense situation like that where someone's firing and you look around and you see th- three people, and they may be. The, their their posture, their body language may be such that you see them as a threat, but they're not. Now, if the, if you look over and you see them with three rifles and they're shooting, I mean, then I, I think that's that's harder to discount as uh, you know, a valid uh, a valid witness of of what's going on. But um, so I just need to see, I think, exactly what these three what these people said about the multiple shooters. Have you guys do you guys know if you've read any? kind of direct statements from these people? No, I haven't. Yeah. But uh, one last point about Munich, unless we have more to say on the subject. Um, You know, this occurred at the Olympic Mall in Munich. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with the story, I think it was in the 1972 or 1973 Olympics in Munich. 72. um, You had a situation where the Israeli uh, uh, wrestling team was... um, was taken hostage by uh, a group of Palestinians at the time. And in a kind of a botched rescue effort on the part of the German government uh, and or other interested parties, um, all of the, I think, nine or ten wrestlers were killed. Um, so I just I couldn't help uh, remembering that and this kind of odd echo of that event, um, maybe a kind of a... Uh, a reminder of of terrorism and and you know who to who to lay the blame on. Except in this case, the the lone wolf who was killed um, wasn't Palestinian or even an uh, Islamic uh, necessarily. Well, he was German Iranian in, in any case. But um, I just thought that that was a an odd sort of coincidence, if that's what it is, uh, with the situation. Oh, yeah. um, well, just. Um, Go ahead. Maybe just one thing before we go to the police state roundup. I think that if I go a little bit uh, out there for a second, um, when I think about the coincidence, the tragic coincidence of this independent journalist guy being at both sites, and then the the Munich, the kind of allusion to to the the Munich massacre back in 1972, I'm wondering. Um, well, until there's more evidence mm-hmm. of kind of direct complicity of intelligence agencies in both attacks, I'm I'm open to coincidences happening. Now, but when I when I think about highly significant coincidences, I think about them more in terms of actual like synchronicity, mm-hmm. in terms of something kind of paranormal going on, mm-hmm. where it's this um, this kind of symbolic information field access mm-hmm. type of event going on. Mm-hmm. Because I think we've all experienced synchronicities to some degree in our lives and. Um, even some really intense ones that kind of go beyond any kind of um, chance, just random explanation. Like, there's some weird stuff, and you can read you can read examples of some of the biggest ones in parapsychological research. But I just um, I just leave open that possibility too for for when we have events that are so significant in in the world and in geopolitics and just um, just everyday life that 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 taps into something deep. I think. 
But with that said, um, maybe we can give a few comments at the end of the show. But for now, we are going to go to our police state roundup. Brent, are you on the line? Hey. Yes, hello guys. How are you doing? Hey Brent, good. Pretty good. Um, couple major stories this week and then some more on the relatively minor side, even though it's kind of weird to call them minor. Um, probably the big one that's been floating around social media is this officer in uh, North Miami who shot a behavioral therapist who was attempting to calm uh, this autistic guy who was armed with a toy truck. Um, so basically what had happened was this autistic man had gotten away from his group home and he was sitting in the middle of a street with a toy truck. Um, someone called the police and, you know, mentioned that there was somebody with a gun and immediately the police went into overdrive mode. Um, they found this guy and his behavioral therapist, um, in the middle of a street and, the behavioral therapist, you know, he's a black man. He realized what was happening, given the climate of everything going on, um, got on the ground, laid down on his back, put his hands in the air, and clearly reiterated, you know, by yelling to the officers um, over and over again that, you know, he's a behavioral tech, that this guy was autistic, that he has a toy truck, and that's it. And that's the only thing that was happening. Um, nevertheless, um, an officer decided to fire three shots. One of them hit the behavioral technician. Um, and <clears throat> when the tech asked the officer, you know, why he shot him, the officer's response immediately was, I don't know. Um, about 24 hours later, the, uh, his chief or the head of the Miami-Dade Union, police union, uh, basically said that he, the officer was attempting to save the behavioral technician whom he thought the uh, autistic man was about to discharge a weapon at him. Um, which really doesn't make any sense. Well, um, I think this, what I read in that story was that uh, the cop said that um, the cop said that he was aiming for the autistic man. Yes. And he hit he, the behavioral ther- therapist by accident, which isn't funny, obviously, but it's kind of, it's just, it takes the incompetence thing. I mean, um, to a whole new level, you know, we're not just talking about idiots in uniforms here. We're talking about idiots in uniforms who can't even shoot straight either, you know. Not that it would have been a good idea for the autistic man to be to be hit either, but Jesus, you know, I mean, <coughs> that would have just been uh, taken it to a whole new level where, you know, if they had to kill them or something like that, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's very strange because the behavioral technician was clearly, there's video of the incident that was recorded by a bystander and... Clearly, the guy is just yelling, you know, I'm a behavioral technician. This man is autistic. He has a toy truck. Hmm. Um, so he, there was no gun. There was no weapon. Um, I'm not sure how an officer can mistake a toy truck for a weapon. It's just, you know, if you're, if anything, you know, you would think a police officer of all people would, you know, be able to distinguish those two items. Right. Um, but yeah, so it's, this has been floating around social media. There's actually another video where the uh, the behavioral tech is, explains what happened in his own words. 
Um, so you can see all that stuff online. I'll post a link in the chat. Um, the other big thing that came out this week um, was video from a dash cam um, of an officer who arrested a black school teacher in uh, last year, 2015. <clears throat> this was out of Austin, Texas, and this woman was originally stopped for speeding, supposedly. She pulled into a Wendy's parking lot and you know, got out of her car when a, an officer pulled up behind her and told her to get back in the vehicle, and she was confused. She didn't know what was going on, you know, what's, what's happening. Um, <clears throat> he told her that she was being pulled over for speeding to get back in her vehicle, and you know, she was a little confused and distressed, but she complied nonetheless. She gets back into the car. The officer approaches, tells her to you know, put her feet back in the car so he can close the door, um, and at this point, she just gets frustrated, and you know, she asks, could you please hurry up? And as soon as she dropped that, the officer immediately went into violent mode and he grabs her, um, starts screaming, stop resisting, stop resisting, get out of the car. Um, and this woman who's like easily 50 to 70 pounds less than the officer is ripped out of the car, thrown to the ground. Um, and the video is really shocking. Uh, it's hard to watch. Um, and then she gets handcuffed and another officer arrives at the scene and, you know, she asks, you know, why is this happening? And basically the other officer explains that, you know, white people are afraid of black people because of their, quote, violent tendencies. So this is uh, floating around in the media right now. It's, it's like I said, the video is very disturbing to watch. And, you know, someone who is pulled over for driving 15 miles per hour over the speed limit to be treated so violently is is really dis disturbing and it goes to reiterate the whole point that black lives matter has been trying to be making that that black people are treated differently by police officers and often with violent consequences um another story that i found very interesting especially in the aftermath of the uh shootings of police in louisiana and in dallas is that uh, president obama is now ordering a review of his 2015 ban on military grade uh, equipment being sold to the police. So now they're talking about, you know, in 2015, Obama basically said, we're not going to be giving cops tanks anymore. No more grenade launchers. Um, there's no reason for it now because of these shootings. Um, he's reviewing that ban. Um, let's see. Such items include uh, military grade riot gear, armored vehicles, rocket launchers, and other high powered weaponry. Um, so now the police <clears throat> seem to be able to, they might be getting, you know, all these crazy advanced toys back in light of these shootings, which makes me wonder with my uh, tip, my tinfoil hat on for a moment, perhaps that was the actual reason for these, these shootings. Maybe these, these people were put, uh, they were activated so that, you know, now we can go back to arming the police and turning them into a paramilitary. Um, Let's see. And then other stories I found that were very disturbing. Um, these, <clears throat> a family in Oklahoma was celebrating the five, uh, fifth birthday, five years old birthday of one of their children um, when their pit bull bulldog mix, uh, Opie, was shot in the backyard by an officer who was for saying that he was serving a warrant. Um, but the uh, after a little, you know, cursory investigation showed that the person that they were uh, serving the warrants 
uh, hadn't lived in that house for over a decade. Um, so this officer basically had a warrant. He had an address associated. He goes to the address, um, sees the dog in the backyard. The dog lunges at him through a fence. I mean, the officer wasn't really in danger, um, even though in his official report, he lies and say that the dog was biting him, was grabbing him, and that that's when he shot him on the side of the house. From the position of where the dog died, it's obvious that that's not what happened. Um, and it's just, it's really sad. It's like these kids, you know, and they... Once, once the dog was hit, everybody realized what was happening because they heard the, the gunshot. So they went outside to see what was going on. And as they were coming out to check on the dog, the officer fired another two shots and, and killed, it, killed it right in front of the family. Um, another weird story that has kind of ominous hints to it is that um, a lot of cops, especially on these law enforcement um, like forums and message boards, are now claiming that, you know, we are in the midst of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's this weird kind of language where officers think that they are, um, you know, they're on one side of a war and I guess the American public is on the other side. Um, it's, it's very disturbing, especially considering that if anyone is, you know, being warred on, it's, it's the American public. You know, we're not, the, the amount of times that, that, that cops have been the victim of violence from, from random people in 2015 and 2016 is at all time lows. And now these, these cops are very thin skinned, you know, anytime anything happens where a cop is attacked, it's almost, it's like, you know, now, now they are the victims and they must defend themselves with all violence necessary. And it's just really, really disturbing. Um, You'd think that you know, cops, you know, that are saying these kind of inflammatory comments should have their status as officers questioned, but it's it seems to be fairly common. There was one com there was one comment that had uh, looks like it came from Facebook. It had 561 likes, and it says, "quote A lot of these thugs don't realize that a lot of us officers have spent a lot of time downrange, stomping in the sandbox, and are ready for a righteous fight if they want to bring one." Hmm. really scary stuff um yeah the whole civil war business it's interesting to notice the way it's uh it was a meme that came out uh as a result of simultaneous almost uh, events or terror attacks or police shootings in the u.s and in europe you know because after uh, uh around the time of the the nice attacks uh or even before them um they the french or french uh Kind of politicians or former, I think he was a former French uh, intelligence chief, whatever, was talking about uh, a civil war in France, you know, between between Muslims and non-Muslims and stuff. And around the same time, that, that, that's all going on. You have these shootings in the U.S. and <clears throat> talk about a civil war. The New York Post, I think, had after the <clears throat> Baton Rouge shootings, you had a New York a New York Post had a headline: "Civil War in USA." So, I mean, of course, I don't think that's really going to happen <clears throat> in either place. Um, but I think it it serves the powers that be very well to uh, to promote that kind of that idea, you know, because it uh, it encourages everything. It encourages the social chaos and social discord, and keeps people on edge. And ultimately, as far as they're concerned, uh, pushes as many people as possible into the arms of authority, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's rhetoric because you know I don't really see how a civil war could ever actually happen. Uh, in in the US, for example, I mean, maybe you, know, you can have more shootings and that kind of stuff, and and you know maybe riots and stuff like that. But you're not really talking about uh, any kind of a civil war as it is known 
Oh, it's been known in other countries, you know. Yeah, this whole it's, it kind of blends with the whole "there's a war on cops" narrative, which is patently false. Um, like I said, the police officers, a lot of them, and especially in the unions, um, they they feel that they are under attack, and really, it's it's the American public that is under attack from them, and we're just trying to have a legitimate conversation about it in order to save more lives and avert more death, but. Um, God forbid you, you bring that up to them directly. Um, there's one officer who is a Cincinnati police officer, um, and he's getting a lot of flack and may even face disciplinary action for posts online attempting to have an honest conversation about racism. Mm-hmm. Um, this officer, uh, his name is Freddie Viz- Vincent, went online and basically was kind of saying, you know, to basically, he said, I'll quote him, a message to all my Afro-American friends and family, uh, when you're encountered by a white officer, make sure that you are in a public place, comply with all of their commands because they are looking for a reason to kill a black man, and always keep your hands in the air, never resist. I'm so tired of cops using the famous words, I was in fear of my life. I'm praying for Louisiana, and that could have been his nephew in Baton Rouge. Um, that's all he said. He posted that online. Um, and... Apparently, the police are now reacting to that as if it's some sort of inflammatory and damning statement against, you know, all officers. Mm. It's just really, it's, it's really scary. Um, and all he was trying to do is, you know, calm tensions and have, uh, have an honest conversation. And now he might be facing disciplinary actions for violating the department's social media policy, which is very kind of obscure. Um, and yeah, I see Grim posted something in the chat room about death rates of officers being 10 times less than that of, uh, woodcutters or, uh, people that cut down trees. There's a, an interesting infographic I posted on Facebook, uh, yesterday or the day before, which basically shows, um, deaths by occupation in the United States and, you know, how many people die while they're at work. And Mm. There was this whole skew of different uh, professions that were above police officers. Police officers were at the bottom of the list with like 61 deaths a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't directly related to uh, the police, but um, it's an interesting story about half of all TSA employees being accused of misconduct, and many of them are repeat offenders. So it just goes to show you that the the TSA is, you know, it's kind of like another arm of the police. They, they work very in close quarters with them. And the times that they get reported for some, some sort of, you know, professional misconduct is ridiculous. Uh, the number of employees that have at least one complaint against them are about 15,000. The number of, with two complaints, 6,000. Three complaints, almost 3,000. And the total number of complaints uh, or the total number of employees that have complaints against them is like something like 26,878. And that's from the TSA's own data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's out of well, something like um, 60,000 total. So, yeah, like you said, 50, pretty much 50%. One in two TSA um, employees is, <laughs> is either a one-time or repeat offender. Yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. Um, and it just keeps happening. Uh, nobody wants to reform the TSA. It's just like it's, well, it's just the cost of doing business or whatever. Um, yeah, and then they. This is another interesting story. Just wait, Brent, on that. They oh, go ahead. they then put put these people on paid leave while they investigate it, and they've spent like millions of dollars paying the paying the wages for these people while while they're not working. 
there I can't remember how many, but there are several that they have put on paid leave for like over a year while they investigate this. So there's, they're paying these people full wages, millions of dollars um, <laughs> in paid leave. It's just ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah, and the same thing happens with officers. Anytime there's an investigation questioning the, the you know whether or not their actions were appropriate, they all get placed on paid leave. Um, let's see here. Uh, <clears throat> there's another a video. Uh, this story was on a Free Thought Project about um, police basically forcing their way into a home and um, you know occupying the house you know with their weapons. Uh, because they, quote, smelled marijuana. Um, and this just goes back to America's failed war on drugs and how often stuff like this is used to traumatize and kidnap or uh, imprison citizens. I mean, we're, we're talking about a plant here that isn't dangerous. Um, and it's just unreal that, you know, actual danger can be brought upon someone um, and how they can have their lives threatened because an officer or officers think they smell the plant. It's just unbelievable. Um, and then there was an interesting story from Georgia where this guy, um, he was caught, uh, let's see, his name is Brandon Lee Gary, who openly admitted to sneaking upskirt videos of a woman while she grocery shopped. This guy is clearly a pervert. He's gotten in trouble for this uh, a lot. But um, he took the, the decision against him um, to a higher court and ended up winning, um, you know, basically because the wording of the law that they said he violated was too vague to, um, to, to specifically punish him for, for doing this. So this guy's shooting up script videos, which is like, you know, take a cell phone camera or kind of like hold it under a woman's skirt to, you know, get a shot of her private area. And that's fine. But um, the state of Georgia actually is another one of those states that um, imprisons people for uh, marijuana related crime at a ridiculously high rate. So there's, there's no problem with kidnapping and caging uh, and shooting people, you know, over marijuana. But when a guy is like clearly sexually harassing women, they can't, you know, can't do anything about it. Sorry. Hmm. Um, also related to the war on drugs. Hold on um, one sec, Brent. We've got a we've got a caller. We're gonna we're gonna go to that, and maybe we'll get to to your last story afterwards. Is that cool? Yeah, go for it. Hi, caller. You're on the line. Can you let us know who you are, where you're from? Yeah, this is Kent from West Virginia. Hi, Kent. Hello. And I just have one real quick comment about what you're talking about now. And it occurs to me that all these incidents, the rise of these incidents um, coincides with uh, us, the uh, peasantry, calling these people officers instead of cops. You know, I, you know, um, we can call them cops and we don't have to call them officers. That's my personal thinking. But uh, I just want to put that out there for uh, your consideration, you know. Uh, I don't like calling these guys officers. Um, um, I just don't. Cops is all right, you know. So well, maybe they get an inflated sense of themselves being called an officer, you know. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't mind calling cops officers if uh, they, you know, were, were worthy on the whole and, and deserving of um, respect. 
uh, maybe just as a matter of policy and, and keeping safe, it's a good idea to um, to be respectful in any case. Um, but well, you know that. You, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well when I, you're addressing them, yeah, maybe so. When you're in a in a you know frightening situation, but in our general conversation here, we're just talking about cops amongst ourselves, you know. So that's just that's just one observation. Yeah. That, that did just remind me uh, quickly of a, a law that is being discussed or will be discussed when Congress comes back to session in the U.S., and it's called Blue Lives Matter. That's Blue Lives Matter. And, uh, and the idea is that uh, any crime against the cop will be treated as a hate crime. Um, so what this effectively does is further uh, kind of creates this self-importance and, uh, and entitlement or exceptionalism. That's another word we've heard being described about uh, acts of any military force coming from the U.S. Um, it, it, it imparts this exceptionalism on, on police officers uh, who are uh, above and beyond the law. So um, I, I think it's. Uh, I think we're we're seeing some really scary developments coming from the federal side of things as well, uh, in bolstering this idea that that cops or or police officers are above the law, in some sense. Smurfs' lives matter because they're blue. Yeah, it's all, it's all very frightening, and um, uh, well. Um, I had to contemplate what's happening, but it's not going to get, it's not going to turn around. I don't like. No. It's a downward spiral to. Uh, yep. To a crash, and then we'll recover from something, whatever. After the end, you know, after the crash, we just have to pick it, pick it all up together. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for calling in, Kent. We'll talk okay. to you later. All right. All right. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. So, Brent, yeah, do you have another story? Yeah, they actually passed a law similar to that. Uh, yeah, they, they actually passed a law similar to that in, uh, I think it was North Carolina or maybe Georgia. It's one of the southern states. Um, so that law is already on the books in those states. Um, and it basically it establishes police as a protected class. And anything from you know assaulting an officer to resisting arrest will now have added penalties uh, piled on top of it. Um, Let's see. Uh, Yeah, this is related to the drug war. Uh, Innocent man was jailed for a month, um, lost his apartment and his job after cops mistook some homemade soap for cocaine. Um, This guy was basically from Brooklyn. His name's Alexander Bernstein. He um, was driving to Florida to visit his sister with one of his friends, and he was pulled over uh, on an interstate because he was doing 65, uh, 60 miles per hour in a 55-mile-per-hour mi- zone, which in and of itself is kind of unusual. Um, usually in the States, you know, you can get away with 5 or 10 over the limit without getting pulled over. Um, but they decided to pull this guy over anyway. Um, he made the mistake of consenting to a search, uh, which, you know, you should never, ever consent to a search by officers. They found uh, some white soap wrapped in clear plastic with red tape, um, it was, you know, brick shaped and, uh, they, you know, immediately assumed it was cocaine. Um, they used a field test kit, which apparently came up negative, but they <clears throat> turned that around and said it was positive. 
so this guy ended up in jail uh, for a month and lost his job. He ended up suing, um, and he's been awarded like almost $200,000 settlement. Um, but it's just unbelievable how often stuff like this happens. This is not like an isolated incident. These field test kits are notoriously unreliable um, on their own, uh, let alone when you have officers forging the test results. Uh, it just really goes to show that they're they're out to get people. You know, they're trying to make numbers, and they will use anything they can to uh, to put people in jail, um, even when it's not a violation of the law. Um, and just two more quick stories. There's a video of a drunken officer pulling a gun on a Jack in the Box employee because he quote was not making his burger fast enough. This is from California, Santa Clara. A uh, drunk officer pulled into drive through a jack of box about 2.40 in the morning. And, um, you know, when he thought that, you know, his food wasn't coming quick enough, he ended up pulling his gun out and pointing it at the guy through the window. Uh, they called 911, and there was a little tense standoff before police arrested their fellow officer and took him away. Um, of course, in the press conference talking about it, the, uh, the cops um, made no... Uh, mention of the fact that he pulled a gun on this employee and just kind of like, you know, said that DUI is a big problem and mm. blah, 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 blah. Um, this story was a little disturbing. This comes from Montana. Um, and um, a while ago, there's this small town that hosts a big um, a rodeo. And it's mostly uh, Native Americans. And the police were tasked with rounding them up, um, you know, the poor um, you know, homeless people and kind of like throwing them into these open air prisons without charges um, for the duration of this weekend rodeo. Um, and now there's a, a civil suit um, against the, uh, the, the the city and the police um, basically because they, you know, they rounded people up and put them into a concentration camp. And when you read the, de- the description of these camps, it's very eerily reminiscent of the Nazi era. You know, they were either post outside in like very cold conditions. They were given like a pot to pee in. Um, you know, men were instructed to urinate through the fence. Um, people were soiling themselves because they couldn't get close enough to the fence. Um, they were fed literal goulash when they were fed. There wasn't enough to go around. Um, and then they were all released in waves over the next couple of days with no charges. Um, so it's very scary to see how, you know, if that's how they treat, you know, people of innocent of any crime, you can imagine how they might treat protesters in the not too distant future mm-hmm. when things start to get really bad. Well, there was one, and one that's last, all I got for today. One last story, Brent, maybe you um, wrote about it. It was in an article posted to SOT and it was about how, I think it was the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia. You brought up Georgia a little earlier in regards to, a uh, Blue Lives Matter legislation that went through. Um, So there was um, people calling for this mayor to stop having his police trained by uh, Israeli police and military, Um, basically correctly stating that um, that the training that the police were receiving was was really bad. Uh, And, of course, I mean, it's not only Israeli um, forces or, or companies that are doing this training, 
not only in Atlanta and the U.S. Of course, you have you know former American military uh, inculcating and programming these police to to kind of shoot first and ask questions later. Um, but uh, it's very interesting to read about this mayor and the fact that you know he was not only not going to uh, stop this training. I think it's called Gili training or something. Um, but he himself had a hand in uh, the security business and um, I think kind of peripherally connected to the military-industrial complex uh, and would go to these kinds of organizations and conventions that, that dealt in security. Um, so there's this whole mindset that, uh, that at least in part has been imported uh, from Israel um, to treat people as as if they were in an open-air prison, as if in much the same way that Israelis treat the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and, you know, it's it's part and parcel of, of what we're seeing here. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the war of terror and not on terror. All right, where... Yeah, I think- and there's been stories... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say there have been stories <clears throat> like that coming out of uh, the news since about like 2001. Uh, a lot of connections between uh, Michael Chertoff, who was in the Bush administration. Uh, he's also an Israeli-American dual citizen, and um, he's involved in having NYPD officers and other officers, you know, go either go to Israel or having Israeli uh, military personnel come over here to train cops, and uh, it's been going on for quite a while. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Brent. Uh, We'll talk to you again next week. Yep. Okay. Take care. See you, Brent. Bye, Brent. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we've run over, but we're going to take one more quick call. So I hope we can keep it short. (laughs) TC, are you there? Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hi, good. How are you doing? Hi, TC. Good, good. I know we're running over, so I'll be quick as I can. Um, I just wanted to do a quick update on the Dallas shootings of the police officers who died there. Sure. Um, We were talking Mm -hmm. about it last week, and we were talking about the three people who were arrested. Um, So I looked into this yesterday to see if there was anything else on the story, and these three people have uh, disappeared into thin air. Um, They're now... uh, CNN have done a video where there's a police officer who's now doing a tour of the shooting site, tracing uh, Mika Johnson's steps and the basically saying that um, he was running around from place to place, lots of different places. Uh, and so that was why they thought there were lots of different shooters because he was magically shooting from one place and then running somewhere else and shooting somewhere else. Um, and the quote is... Uh, As we've started to unravel this fishing knot, we realized that the shootings came from one building at different levels from this. So, yeah, you're never going to hear about those three suspects ever again. Mm. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's that. Um, Case closed. Uh, And then just one final point, quite a strange thing. Um, The machete attack in Germany. The story broke uh, in most media around 5 p.m. UK time. Um, Now, uh, they say that it happened at about 
4.30pm German time, which would be 3.30pm UK time. Um, but if you guys, and it's still happening, it's still doing it now, if you guys Google German machete attack, Times of Israel, they broke the story seven hours ago. <laughs> the, re the return, the Google return says that the, their story is seven hours old, which is three and a half hours um, before it was supposed to have happened. So I don't know whether that's a technical glitch or what, but it's a very strange and interesting phenomenon. Mm. Get a screenshot of that. I already have. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Right. Thanks, DC, for that's filling us in on that. Take care. You too. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. Any final thoughts before we call it a day? Mm, nope. Nope. All sleepy. Okay, then. We're going to call it a day. So thanks to Hugo for coming on for the first part of the show. Thanks to Kent and TC for calling in. And we'll be back next week um, covering the madness as we, you know, our planet spirals even deeper into chaos and destruction. Um, at least we've got that to yeah. look forward to, I guess. <laughs> something's got to, yeah. Something's got to give at some point, I think. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I think that the don't tempt, don't tempt fate, Harrison. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, fate. we'll see. Okay, so everyone, take care. We'll something's got to give at some point in yeah. the future. At some point, mm -hmm. let's leave it open. Um, okay. Yeah, because uh, it's not looking good, but um, you know. At the same time, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, mm -hmm. uh, it's a weird it's a weird combination of uh, horrific and uh, kind of fascinating at the same time. But it's pretty fascinating if you can keep a certain a certain level of detachment from it, you know. And it's not always always easy to do that, but um, uh, it's possible um, with the right perspective. But yeah, I mean, put it this way: if it wasn't, if it was just horrible. Mm -hmm. If there wasn't some kind of interest or fascination about it in terms of just how the whole thing plays out and keeping context, keeping it in the context of, of history and historical cycles and that kind of thing, if, if we didn't have that, I don't think we'd be doing this because who wants to look at, you know, just pure horrific, the pure horrific and chaotic decline of a, of a civilization, you know, mm -hmm. and all the, all the suffering that goes on. No one's going to look at that out of, you know, for that reason, out of interest in that, but it's 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 almost from a historian's perspective, uh, history being made and watching history develop as you know, as you sit there is a, is, is supposed the interesting part of it. It's what keeps us, it's what keeps us going, and also just to try and keep people informed and keep other people um, who are listening and people who read our websites and stuff keep them, um, like, you know kind of buoyed up to a certain extent or as much as possible and try to remind them uh, to not get too identified with it and too bogged down in it, you know, because it will. It, it, like I was saying earlier on, it, it kind of gets to people and uh, obviously it gets to some people to the point where they go out and, you know, go crazy. Um, but it also gets to all ordinary, normal human beings on this planet uh, and and we need to stick together and um, and, you know, support each other and, in that way, make it a little bit easier to, to handle, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's important, Joe, because if we go crazy, then on some level they've won. Um, and by the same token, I think, like, you know, 
this past week and a half with the failed coup, you know, we can we can take pleasure, a little pleasure anyway, imagining that somewhere in some office in Langley or the Pentagon, there are a bunch of guys sitting around a table, stomping their fists, sweating, angry, enraged that their plans fell through, and uh, and probably many more of their plans will fall through, even even if even if there is some damage along the way that yep. they are able to uh, commit. So not much of a consolation for all this horror we're seeing, but maybe just a little bit. All right. And on that note, yeah. we're going to leave you for the day. So everyone take care. Be well. Take care. Have a good week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>